Hi ho ho, it's me, Hideo Kojima, back at it again with a new episode of the Boy Time Podcast. And as always, I'm joined by Babby and Paul. Hey. Uh, uh, we have a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Um, I mean, last time we already mentioned that we're going to be talking about Succession. Uh, the I guess the final season. Uh, we're a couple months late, but I finally watched it. And so we can finally give our updated uh, thought, or I guess not our updated thoughts, but our regular thoughts on that. So we'll be going through that. I also saw the Barbie movie. I know Babby also saw the Barbie movie. So we will talk about that. Did you see Oppenheimer? No. I didn't either. We were busier than we thought, and spending three hours in a movie theater is really hard yes uh and the theaters are actually still really busy yes yes uh barbie actually uh shattering more records than maybe expected uh it it has had the lowest second weekend drop of all time at 40 percent which sounds like a lot but considering that like flash got like an 80 percent decrease in its second weekend it's pretty g-dang good so, um, yeah, people are still seeing it. The theater that we went was actually pretty empty. We went at like 8 p.m. on a Friday, I think, maybe. That's crazy. I don't remember. We went 8 p.m. on a Sunday and it was completely full. Oh. <laughs> well, we didn't go. Okay, so there's two Marcus theaters near me. One of them is a very small one that is connected to a mall that is actually right across the street from where I live. So we just walked over there on on Friday night. Um, And then there is the bigger one that is the next city over uh, that we did not. We usually go there because it's nicer. Uh, But I was like, eh, let's just walk. It's a nice night. Let's just walk over. So that's what we did. And it was very empty. Um, and then as we were leaving, I, I shit you not, it was like the most stereotypical thing ever. We were walking out and then in front of the theater, there were like 10 or 12, like white guy, 20 something white guys. And they were in a circle and they were discussing Oppenheimer. <laughs> it And it was like the most surface level stuff. Like they just did not oh, yeah, understand sure. how it was like, cause we were walking past them, and then one guy was like, "No, no, 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 the the stuff that's in color, that's like, that's like, uh, it's like a story. That's just storytelling. But the black and white stuff, that's real. That's what happened in real life, and that's like historically <laughs> accurate." I'm like, "Yeah, that's that's what Christopher Nolan has been saying for the last like two months." Um, and also, I'm pretty sure the black and white stuff is just legal court drama stuff. From what I've heard. I, I don't know. I, I can't attest to that yet. So. Um, I think. I think that's what it is. Because that's like where like Robert Downey Jr. is in it. Um, where it's like, I guess he's... I, I don't know. I honestly, I don't know. I know there, there's a court thing. But I don't know what, what happens there. But, yeah, I just thought it was very funny. Um, but we were leaving Barbie and then there was a bunch of white dudes discussing Oppenheimer. So, yeah, we'll talk about Barbie. Um, I did also watch the, uh, I don't think this is the official name, but this is the name that the Criterion Collection uh, gave it. It is the 
La Trilogia de Guillermo del Toro, um, which is a uh, collection of three very early Guillermo del Toro movies, uh, including his first movie, Kronos, um, but all of them are in Spanish. So it is uh, Kronos, Devil's Backbone, and Pan's Labyrinth, um, which I did not know that Pan's Labyrinth is a like spiritual successor to Devil's Backbone. Um, kind of. Um, we'll get into that, but yeah. We'll, I'll talk about the... I probably won't have a whole lot to say about uh, most of them, but I thought that I would bring it up just because I did watch them, and they were pretty G-dang good. So, yeah, yep, we have a full docket ahead of us. Um, so we'll get, like, the little bit of news out of the way first just because uh, I think that uh, there's some uh, there's some stuff we need to talk about. Um, I think we'll start with the exciting stuff. Um, it was announced, I think, like, a couple weeks ago. Simon Pegg was just, like, kind of casually, like, yeah, me and Edgar Wright, we've been, like, you know, going back and forth, like, w- talking about making a new movie, but then every time we get together, like, uh, they, like, get together at Edgar Wright's house, and Edgar Wright's dog always interrupts them, and they just, like, play with the dog instead of writing the movie, which is <laughs> about what you would expect from those two guys. Um, and so I'm like, oh, okay. I don't know if Simon Pegg is trolling, though. In that interview specifically, he was also like, yeah, I kind of just want to... It's not going to be another Cornetto movie. He wants. He really wants to, like, hammer that in, that it's not going to be the fourth entry in the Cornetto trilogy. He's, like... I, I actually would want to do something, like, the exact opposite that every single fan of the Cornetto trilogy would hate. Um which I think could also be interesting. I don't think, as someone who really likes those movies, uh, Hot Fuzz being my favorite movie of all time, um, I, I think uh, I would not like it if that is the purpose. But So I don't know what he was going on in that interview. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the uh, context of what was going on. I know that it was like he's been getting interviewed for stuff because he's in that new Mission Impossible movie. So he's making the rounds, and I guess people are asking him about this new Edgar Wright movie. But it was officially announced, um, I like I think today, as of us recording it, that it is like officially in pre-production. So it is more officially a thing now that Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright are coming back together to make a new movie, um, which is very, very exciting for me. Um, I, I have been a, a big fan of Edgar Wright stuff post the Cornetto trilogy, but, uh, there is, there's something missing from them, um, both in Baby Driver and in, uh, Last Night in Soho. They're, they're, they're very good. They're very technically very well done movies, but I think the stories, sometimes they lack a lot of like emotional uh, connections with the characters like I'm not super attached to any of the characters in uh, especially last night in Soho there's some interesting kind of things going on in Baby Driver that I think are pretty interesting but 
you know, no, none of the, the characters are quite as good as like Nicholas Angel from Hot Fuzz or uh, like Sean and I can't I can't remember Nick Frost character in John of the Dead. But those two's dynamic is very, very good um, in John of the Dead. Uh, so hopefully now that these two guys are coming back together, that we're going to be getting some more super epic uh I don't, I don't even know what it's going to be. Simon Pegg also said he's done with sci-fi. So I don't know. Um, he also said that his favorite Cornetto movie is the world's end. So I don't, I don't know what's going on with him. He's just like, he's throwing away his entire identity and he's like, I'm, I'm a new man. I've been hanging out with Tom Cruise for the last 10 years and now I'm a different person, which I would be too. Happens to the best of us. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's just like constantly dealing with Scientology bodyguards and you, you can't show. A person. Yeah, <laughs> you can't show Tom Cruise a, a, a book of anything that is not approved by the church um, in fear of losing their golden goose. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, exciting stuff. But I mean, this is very early in development, so. You know, probably won't hear anything else from this for a couple of years uh, at best. Plus, all the strike stuff is still going on. Um, so, yeah, uh, it is early in the works, but they probably aren't going to start working on it yet. So um, I, I did see that Edgar Wright has been uh, he was on the picket line uh, for the WGA strikes uh, earlier this week. He flew down to Los Angeles to be a part of that. So, yeah, probably not working on the movie right now, but that's okay. Nope. That's okay. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk about something a little more depressing. Um, yay. Yay. Speaking of dumb Hollywood stuff, uh, I I would have to imagine that this is inspired by the strike, but... Uh, news from Paramount CEO Brian Robbins uh, that they are officially moving away from releasing original animated movies in theaters and ex instead will solely focus on IPs. So, uh, not that Paramount is known for animated stuff. Frankly, I don't know if I could name a Paramount animated movie besides the Peanuts one, like four or five years ago now um so expect more of those i guess uh but yeah so it we're not going to be getting anything original out of this studio for uh i guess the um foreseeable future they are just going to be making sequels and or spinoffs um uh, the quote from Brian Robbins is, we're not going to release an expensive original animated movie and just pray people will come. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> no, they've just been, they've been out of pocket. They don't yeah. Care it's like that. I mean, yeah, like you could literally substitute that for like the, all of the Disney live action remakes and, he just basically said the loud part out, uh, the, the quiet part out loud. Where, you know. Yeah. 
So it's very disappointing. Um, I saw Del Toro retweeted that quote and just said, dear Lord. Um, Cause that, <laughs> that basically just goes against everything he's been yeah. campaigning for uh, in animation. Uh, I, th- I thought I saw someone else talk about it. Um, but I mean, suffice to say this is uh, not good, but again, I, I can't imagine that this is not somehow connected to all the strike stuff. Uh, if you can't get writers that, are capable of making good original things than maybe getting some scabs that can cobble together a sequel or something that already exists. Make a Sherlock Gnomes 2. Is that Paramount? I couldn't tell you. I need to see what they have made. Wait, okay, this is very... Wait, let me... This is not a good list. Okay. Oh, this is not good. Um, oh, wait. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, we're good. Um, so, I thought that they were owned by DreamWorks, and that is not true. Um, so, DreamWorks was owned by them from 2006 to 2012, and now they are owned by Universal. So, that is not... Um, it's not going to impact DreamWorks. Um, although the only thing I'm excited for for DreamWorks is that Shrek thing made by the guy who made Puss in Boots. Um, that's, I mean, that's really the only thing to look forward to there. Um, but, yeah, Paramount Animation. What have they made? Uh, the Sonic the Hedgehog? That doesn't count. That that's not an animated movie. You know, kind of it Great is. Track record. Okay, okay. So they did make Sherlock Gnomes. I was correct. Um, they uh, and they also obviously make all of the Nickelodeon movies. So all the SpongeBob movies. Um, they made uh, um, Paw Patrol the movie. So awesome. pretty good. That's a hard hitter, right there. It's it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, they also count Bumblebee as an animated. None of these are animated. Wikipedia, this is terrible. Uh, Transformers is not an animated movie. Transformers: Rise of the Beasts. That is, that is, uh, this is Marky Mark still in that one? I don't know. Who's who's in these movies anymore? Uh, it's not Shia. Shia. Was and then they changed it to Marky Mark, and now I don't know. According to Wikipedia, Anthony Ramos is the uh, is the lead in it. Who, what have I seen this man in? He looks very familiar. Oh, he was in Hamilton. Ew. That's so weird. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, maybe this won't uh, impact as much as I thought it would, but. Still, you know, it's it's kind of weird that they're just like maybe their platform is just making cheap garbage movies, and that's what they're doing. I mean, it's, it looks like they're already just making IP movies, like yeah, which is already cheap garbage. So I'm looking at the last like ten. Um, they have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's the new one coming out soon. Tomorrow, as of us recording this, actually. Uh, then Transformers: Pause of Fury. 
I don't know what that is. It's a loose remake of the 1974 live action film Blazing Saddles. What? What the hell? <laughs> wait, 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 wait. It stars Michael Sarah, Ricky Gervais, and Mel Brooks himself is in this. And Sam, J- what? I've never even heard of this. And this came out last year. Okay. Uh, well, then I guess that's technically IP if it's a remake of of Blazing Saddles and Sonic and then Clifford the Big Red Dog, Paw Patrol, Sonic 1, Dora and the Lost City of Gold. Uh, yeah. Wow, okay. So, yeah. So I, I hope that other studios don't see this and see this as a good move. Um, which I would honestly be pretty surprised by just because of how big, uh, Spider-Verse and surprisingly enough, Elemental was, um, nobody talks about Elemental. I don't know anybody who has seen it, but like, it was like getting a lot of money. Uh, it was like blowing everything else out and maybe cause like nothing else was out cause it was up against like Flash. <laughs> So, I only heard bad stuff about it, so... <laughs> no, like, I, I hadn't heard anything good, but, like, people were seeing it. it. It made a lot of money, somehow. This is like the Trolls World Tour of Pixar movies, where it's just, like, a bunch of people saw it, and... Okay, cool. Hopefully they don't make sequels, but... Well, Trolls has a new one coming out, I think, so. Yeah, they do. They do. It played <laughs> before cool. Barbie. Failed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's the third one now. Um, awesome. Yeah, yeah, they are. They are. Who would have thought that that funny Justin Timberlake thing? Uh, what was that? I can't fight the feeling. That was from the first Trolls movie. Oh yeah, remember that song? I do. So good. Yes. Justin so Timberlake good. is probably my favorite artist of all time. True. Uh, even better than Pablo Picasso. Uh, but I think that's it. That's it for news. Uh, yeah, just, just some disappointing stuff and then stuff that is not going to happen for a very long time. So I don't know. Do we want to talk about succession right now? We can. Nah. No, let's let's save it for, for, an hour Save later. Save it for next month, you know. Next year. Next month. It'll, I won't it'll be more relatable next month. Believe me. I uh, really, I mean, probably. It's not going to be any less relatable in a month. <laughs> uh, unless something absolutely wacko crazy happens or the entire society has changed in the course of oh, a month. Oh, it's gonna. Believe me, it's gonna. So the revolution is coming next week, huh? Oh, yeah, I know. Okay. I have my people's. <laughs> Mark your calendars. <laughs> Nothing Someone bad. Someone said something about how uh, decades can happen in weeks or something. I don't know. Hmm. hmm. This is true. This is true. Uh, but, yeah, so Succession, wildly popular show that ended a couple months ago. I finally saw it, and so we can finally talk about it. Um, Babby, what did you think about Succession, season four? Uh pretty flawless i would say yeah one of the best tv shows ever made i think it stuck the landing it did it did 
it takes a lot for me to like keep up with the weekly TV show as it comes out. But as soon as I started watching season four, I had to do it like the day of every week, mm. which is very rare. <laughs> yeah. I don't do that for much. Me neither. <laughs> uh, obviously, because I didn't watch it weekly because um, I'm bad. I, I, I think I was just kind of overwhelmed when the show came out. There was a lot happening. This show and Barry and Ted Lasso, I think we're all releasing episodes weekly at that point. And instead of watching one and sticking to it, I watched none of them because I was too scared. Um, And so just over time, I'm just going to eventually go back and watch all of them because they're all their last seasons, too. So the last season of Succession, last season of Barry, last season of Ted Lasso, and uh, all at once. And so I was just like, ah, this is a lot. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I finally watched it. I watched it on my vacation. A uh, very enjoyable way to spend my trip was watching <laughs> this show. Um, luckily I did not watch, did I watch the election episode? The election episode made me very angry. Um, just because because it brought me back to that point that, that like 2020 election was so miserable. Those like couple of days where it it took so long. And I just remembered it, like I had it pulled up on like my laptop. Like, I don't remember what it was, if it was NPR or, or New York times or whatever, like, I had the map up all the time. Yeah, New York Times had that map up that, like, updated every 25 minutes. Yeah, and I would just, like, wake up and pray that it was over. Like, please, <laughs> please, please, I don't. I don't want this. I Just one way or the other, just please just get this over with. And uh, eventually it was, it was over. Uh, and then it wasn't for a very brief stint for about... And then a thingy happened. And then a thingy happened. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a false flag everybody knows false flag on record which that was the part that was like so infuriating where it's like i would say like from the mo- majority of the show even though roman was like the bad guy not the bad guy but like one of the many bad guys one of the many bad guys like he was the most likable i would say oh i hated his guts <laughs> Well, I just look. I I think maybe where that's coming from is I like Kieran Culkin a well, lot. Well, Kieran Culkin did amazing. Yes, he is very so, very charismatic. He's a character funny. you love to hate, and yes. that's that's the best part about it. Yes, uh, except like those last like couple of episodes, I'm like, oh my, I hate this guy. Mm-hmm. He is the absolute worst. Um, and yeah, that that episode in particular is. Uh, uh, quite a cornerstone episode in that um so i well, i guess spoilers spoilers <laughs> we kind of you have already gotten coming. into it yeah but th- it's vague enough you, you don't know what's happening yet yeah um if so Paul can't figure out what's happening yet we're, we're good okay perfect what's happening exactly uh, exactly so we're okay um so i guess m- maybe like Maybe before we talk about the election episode, maybe we should talk about uh, the death of, um, not wait, is it Logan? Logan's the dad, yes. 
yeah. the death of Logan and how that impacts the kids because um, that has been a probably the biggest conflict. Not probably. It has been the biggest conflict throughout the entire series up until that point. Um, that, I mean, the whole show is called Succession. So naturally... Uh, the biggest question raised by the show is who is going to inherit this vast media empire that the dad started between, I guess it could be the four kids, but Connor was never in the picture. No. (laughs) Um, So I guess the three main kids. Um, And so by the end of season three, the... The kids were all kind of united against the dad, um, but then the the he has a heart attack and suddenly everything changes, which I thought was brilliant. Um, it it was and it was like their the third entire, or fourth episode too. It was the third or fourth episode, um, which I do have I do have one one issue one issue that the a loose end that the show did forgot about. I, I think they forgot about it. And I and I don't know, it was never answered, and I was hoping that that the because uh, I watched the little uh, interview thing at the end of the final episode, and I was hoping that they were going to talk about it then, and they didn't. So I'm going to I'm going to raise the question to you, see if you noticed it when we get to the end. But um, yeah, so third or fourth episode, the dad dies, and suddenly. The three main Roy kids are basically just thrust back into the company after being estranged for a long time. And it goes to the point where, um, like, one of their aides is like, well, you were estranged, so we didn't think that, like, you know, we should contact you with these, like, business decisions. And then, like, Kendall's like, nope, nope, not estranged, not estranged. That is too strong a word. And I'm like, bro, like... <laughs> A day before your dad died, he came to you, like, in a karaoke bar, and, like, y'all just, like, shit on him for, like, five minutes, and then we're like, ha yeah. yeah, we just owned our dad, ah. and then he I dies. I say Logan Roy is the worst person, but, like, the yeah. you are not serious people line has not left my head since that happened. It's just, like, the it's, best line. It's so true. <laughs> it's, like... Like yeah, he's definitely the worst, and I, I would I would honestly be really interested in maybe doing like a tier list of all of these characters from like mm-hmm. most evil to least evil, um, because that I think would be kind of fun because I think everybody is evil to an extent, yeah. Um, yeah. but there is definitely degrees of like the atrocities that they have committed, and Logan definitely even without doing a tier list, is the worst. <laughs> but he's right. And mm-hmm. and it is kind of bookended at the end where, where after this big explosion at the end of the last episode where there's this big meltdown and Roman just says, we are bullshit. I am bullshit. You are bullshit. It's just like, like yeah, that's what your dad said like mm-hmm. a day before he died and it took you guys this long to realize that like none of you really have what it takes um and i like it's kind of it's very it's 
it's kind of beautiful, honestly. Like, it's great writing. Um, and, I mean, I don't even think we need to bring up the acting because... Oh, yeah. Best, best I've seen since, like, Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad, and those are only, like, at key moments in those series. Mm-hmm. This one was, like, throughout just, like, crazy good. Yes, and and it's very, like... I think it's honestly kind of crazy that the the people who acted in this show have not been picked up to do like major things since or even during while succession was still being created. Um, I saw that like Sarah Snook was just in like some movie. I saw her in a trailer and I'm like, Oh, that's yeah, Shiv. I think she's some stuff now. Uh, but I, 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 you know, never see Kendall in anything. Uh, Kieran Culkin shows up, once in a blue moon and something and it's always a treat um but yeah like no one is really getting picked i think i saw tom he was in the assistant i think which was like this indie artsy movie about the weinstein stuff or he just loves playing like yeah and the the thing that i've seen from him is that he plays the hr guy and the the assistant goes to him and is like yeah, so I was cleaning up his his office and I found an earring on the couch, basically implying something shady was going on on that couch and she was reporting it to Human Resources and Tom, well, it's not Tom, but it's the guy who plays Tom and he's like, well, how do we know that that like, that it could have just been like an earring just Classic fell HR out. apartment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, that's the point and that's who you cast. Cause yeah. he's no, very yeah, he's good. He's perfect for it. He's perfect. Um, but yeah, the, the, and, and why I'm surprised that a lot of these guys aren't getting picked up in something bigger is because of how this show was shot being a, kind of a gauntlet of like, mm-hmm. uh, like you, you would have to be a top tier actor to even like survive and how this show was shot. Just, it just doesn't stop. <laughs> it doesn't stop. So I guess for those who don't know, let's get into the kind of nitty gritty on how Succession is shot, because it is very interesting. It's very different than how most other shows are shot. Um, so let's take Better Call Saul or, or Breaking Bad, for example, another prestige television program. For the most part, like scenes are blocked. And for those who don't know what that means, like there's storyboarding and like basically all of the movements that an actor does in a scene are planned out in advance and where the camera is positioned for those movements is planned out. And basically they have a number of shots that they're going to do that day in that location. And that is how an average scene is shot. So they just move from shot to shot, to shot, to shot, to shot, not necessarily in order, but that's, that's what they're doing. They're, they're getting all the shots for the day. Um, and, this show is recorded differently. Things are maybe blocked out. The actors know what they're going to do and what they're going to say, but where the camera is going to be and where the camera is going to be looking at, the actors don't know if they are on camera or off camera whenever they are performing. So while they are acting, the camera people are kind of like going in a circle and kind of like, snap zooming and like focusing on who's making like who's performing right now and also 
they might just be recording someone else that is not even saying anything. So these actors are always on because they never know when they are on camera and when they are off camera. And basically they're just re they're doing the scene over and over and over and over again so that the camera people can get like shots of all of the different characters at different points in this conversation. So it is like a never ending gauntlet for these actors just doing the same scene over and over again and they're playing the worst people you can imagine yes <laughs> and they are being incredibly raw and vulnerable like the guy who plays kendall like i have seen i've seen interviews with a lot of like people from behind the scenes that were like yeah we were straight up we straight up thought that he was going to kill himself like i think it was the scene <laughs> I think it's the scene after he and Roman become CEO and he become goes on the beach and he just kind of like oh, yeah. chills out for a minute. Everybody on set was like, we thought that he was going to walk in the water and drown. Like that was how, like we had to like run up to him and kind of shake him out of it because that's how into his character he was. And that, I mean, that just kind of speaks to how like weirdly into acting this guy is, but that's kind of, how you have to operate in this show. You have to be super in and you can't, you have to shut everything else out because everything going on outside of the scene that you're in is absolutely crazy bonkers. So yeah. And you know, that does not end ever in the show. I don't think there is a traditionally blocked shot in the show. Not that I noticed, but also I was not really focusing on it, honestly. It's it's not one of those things where, like, uh, well, you know, there's a little bit of downtime. This is a boring kind of conversation, so I can kind of focus on the filmmaking. No, it is just the the, the conversations and the writing is so good, and it, you're hooked. So it's like I'm, like, drawn into this story so much that I'm not even focusing on what's going on around it, um, which kind of makes me want to rewatch the whole thing because yeah uh, I, I need to rewatch it because like going into season four there was no hand holding on what was no. happening and i was lost for two episodes yes yes uh me too i remember there was some sort of deal i remember that tom betrayed the kids in some way but that was it like i don't know i remember that all the kids were going to be together and kind of united against the dad and that was pretty much it um so, yeah, um, I don't even know what else specifically we need to talk about. I mean, we can talk about the election episode, I guess. It's a pretty I mean, big there's episode. There's, like, so many, like, pivotal episodes in this season. It's kind of crazy that they're all, like, next to each other. Yes. <laughs> it's, like, the death episode, and then you have the election episode, and mm -hmm. then the funeral episode. Mm -hmm. It's, like, all of those ones are, like, 10 out of 10, 100%, like, insanely good. Yes. Yes, I believe when Connor's wedding came out, it was made, I think, I don't remember if it was the highest rated episode on IMDb. I don't know if it beat Ozymandias. I'm not sure. Because um, that was the highest rated thing. Um, so I'm not sure. But I remember like that that one was kind of... Was, people were talking about it. There was a lot of buzz. And I'm like, what's going on? And then I didn't know what was going on for 
two months. So I finally know what was going on. Um, <laughs> it was hard not to talk about that episode after I saw it too. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not good at watching television. Uh, Me neither. Um, but I guess I guess we can talk about the election episode. It's a big episode. It made me very angry, um, which I guess is the point, uh, because the the whole thing, whole conflict, is basically the election. You know, something that you know the American public in real life. This it's this huge event, and um, it seems like a lot of people think that it is very very important. Uh, that is going to impact their lives, and if the wrong person wins, it is the end of the world. For the people in succession, it is more or less inconsequential, except for the fact that they don't want this deal to go through. They don't want their company to be bought out by the Swede. Um, so they basically have aligned themselves with... I. Th- it's kind of... It's, it's, it's an allegory for Trump, but more so just radical right politics. Because um, it, it isn't like obviously a Trump thing. It, it could be just... No, that guy isn't a Trump. That guy's just a bonehead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jared Mankin. It's not like the Yeah, it's not like the Bernie copycat they have. Yeah, which is the guy who was running running for the Democrats, I think, right? Yeah, I don't remember his name. Um, I don't remember either. They don't say his name much. They're more like Mankin, 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 because that's the yeah. guy they want to win. Uh, because it is they he implies that hey, if you uh hmm, you sway the vote for me a little bit, then uh, uh I'll maybe block the deal for you. Um, which really, you know, I don't know what like a news thing can do, but I guess they did do it. Although I don't, I don't know. It's, it's never really like, they never really tie that up. That's not the loose end I was thinking of, but, um, I think it's fine for it it to be open. Yeah. I think the point of the episode is not that. (laughs) No, it's not. Um, Yeah. But that is like the thing. Uh, the so the big conflict of the that episode is, okay. Well, we you know Roman really wants Mencken to win, a because he's a little, uh, like alt right, uh, menace, but Shiv wants Bernie man to win because she I guess campaigned. That was like her thing before she. Uh, I guess got into her dad's business was that she was a like campaign manager for some democratic candidates kind of just to spit in her dad's face because that is what this whole show is about. Um, but she wants him to win. And then Kendall throughout the show kind of switches back and forth, you know, I think, and, and that's kind of the, the perspective that we follow throughout the whole thing um because the episodes i'll do a, I'll do a commie breakdown of this after you finish explaining. Uh, okay okay <laughs> i don't want to go through everything but i think this is important oh yeah to but know. i have a, yeah yeah um because that that this is very key to the whole con conflict is that kendall um and 
his kids aren't brought up a whole lot, but Kendall is a father and his, his daughter is darker skinned. Um, I don't, I don't know if they ever explained why that is like, uh, cause Rava, his ex-wife is not darker skinned. So I'm, I'm not sure if it is a like daughter from a previous relationship or something, but whatever his, he, he calls her his daughter. So I'm just going to say that it is his daughter, but she is darker skinned and it is brought up in the beginning of the episode that, she was attacked or, or not attacked, but harassed by Mankin supporters. And so then his ex-wife's like, Hey, can you calm her down? Can you say that this other guy is going to win? Because there's no way that Mankin is going to win, which is, you know, obviously an allegory for, uh, I, I guess everybody's views in 2016. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they're like, so Kendall starts off being like, okay, well, we need this other guy to win because my daughter. But then Roman's like, well, this is going to, if we get Mencken to win, then he is going to block the deal. And so this is an important emotional crossroads for Kendall in that is he going to take the, the right route and support the candidate that is n- not bolstering Nazis to uh, attack his daughter or is he going to support the candidate that is going to give him more power within his company um and so he kind of goes back and forth which for me uh made me very upset because it was very obvious what he should be doing and he does not do that obviously because this is a show where evil people are evil and um power hungry and greedy uh so when it eventually comes out that like i don't i think the the thing that comes out is that shiv is talking to the swede and that she's working behind their backs to get more power for herself i think that's when that comes out um is in that election episode and so then when he finds that out full-on mankin he's like okay we're gonna call the election for mankin early before the mail-in votes are counted in Wisconsin. Um, so then, yeah, their news organization is the first one to call Mankin for president. And then since they were the first one, then everyone else follows. Um, basically they did, they just called the election for Mankin and he won. Um, so that is the election episode. That is the big kind of arc that goes through it. Uh, explain what a communist thought about this episode. Okay, I, I think it's interesting how we can have two very different perspectives. And okay. I don't mean this as an insult, but that's a liberal way of thinking about it. Um, okay, fill me I want to explain this episode because this is a master class of ruling class um, activity around elections mm-hmm. and the inherent like class consciousness that they have. Um, so they have their two different candidates, Mencken and then this Bernie-looking dude. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically... They, the crux of the episode is like them hemming and hawing between be, like there's these two candidates. Uh, obviously, Mencken was going to be the one they end up supporting because uh, capital will always lead in toward fa- fascism because it protects their corporate interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's explained incredibly well through like the emotional things with Kendall and all that. Um, and I mean, you can have little fights within your own class, but at the end of the day, like everybody's going to go towards this Mencken character. You even see Shiv do this like 
two episodes later right. she cozies up with Mencken. Right, um, yeah. Because even though she's going against her brother, she still has her best interests in mind, which still align with the broader class. Um, so it's interesting to see that because it was just like, this is something you never see in television. <laughs> right. It's so strange because, like, you can see how they move as a unit. You can see Tom throughout this whole thing, like, mm -hmm. trying to get the better end out of this deal, even though he's messing up. And, like, I mean, at the end of the day, we know how Tom kind of gets out of this. Um, well, yeah. He kind of... By the end know, of the show, yes. <laughs> By the end of the show, yes. <laughs> Which, I mean, is, is brilliant. I hate Tom. I've always hated Tom. He's, like, the worst character to <laughs> you me. Have, you um, have. Yes. But, like, at the end, it, it makes complete sense for him to be, <laughs> you know, the one that gets it. Because mm. he bent over backwards for literally everybody. He yep. had no spine across the whole show. Yes. Um, but the election episode is just, like, a fantastic breakdown of that. Um, and it's interesting because, like, I mean... I don't think this show is communist. It just plays the class in a way that you're not used to seeing in modern or like just mainstream TV. Yes. Um, but it's interesting to see like their little petty debates between candidates in the room um, and how like working class people would talk about it or 99% of the population, um, which literally doesn't matter for them because this does not affect them. It's literally the, the bottom line for them. Right. Um, I mean, even... Well, the, the way they set this up is it sounded like if the Bernie guy won, you know, obviously they'd be taxed more and they don't want that. Um, in reality, that wouldn't be what happened. They were even talking about how they could get him to, like, yeah, um, yeah. still work for them throughout the episode. Um, and you just see, like, the incompetence, like, through every single realm in this episode, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the whole Tom and Greg thing with the cocaine and everything, just, like, it was just... A madhouse. <laughs> um, but you see how, like, shaky of an institution it is. Because, yeah. like, again, one one media outlet calls it, they're the first to get on it. All these other media outlets want to be on it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it just shows the shakiness of it. It shows how lobbying, corporate interests, big companies can all play into it. And how, like, one of the biggest companies uh, in the world in this show is connected to so many different things like media, right. um, whether that's TV, print, t uh, movies, TV, they have all this influence to sway this where they can make it very convincing for people that don't know. Yeah. Um, I think the whole show in general does a fantastic job of showing like the discontent that the ruling class has for it because it, they have so many little different levers of power in every single different institution. Like, I mean, Kendall killed the guy and that <laughs> never had any consequence. Roman no. blow up a rocket, no consequence. Like you can just see all of that. So, Oh yeah, he did do that. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot <laughs> about that until they brought it up in like the last episode or whatever. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah, so absolutely phenomenal in that episode. Um, yeah, I mean, great. Yeah, I forgot that he blew up a rocket. I don't mm -hmm. even remember them bringing it up. I, I don't. I thought it, it was like a side comment. It wasn't like they didn't specifically like talk about it. Yeah. Um, or they, cause then like one guy loses hand or something in it. Isn't that what happened? I don't remember. I, I don't. I don't remember this at all. But I, I mean, it, it probably like season happened. one or two. I don't remember. <laughs> oh, okay. I okay. I remember that this happened, but I don't remember, remember any of the specifics. This is yeah. why I need to rewatch the show. I also haven't seen season four um, in like three months, so I'm a little cloudy. <laughs> Well, yeah, but you're still getting a lot of the specifics, which is impressive. I needed I needed a refresher. Yeah. I think once you explained it, I'm like, oh, I remember all this now. <laughs> right. right. Uh, yeah. So I would say that those two are probably the biggest episodes, Yeah. Uh, I would say, um, even though the last episode is probably 
the I, I don't know if it's the most shocking. It would probably be the most shocking to a general audience that is mm-hmm. used to television shows where the even in prestige television shows a lot of uh, well, you know, the protagonist gets it in the end. Even even something like like Breaking Bad, where Walt does die in the end, uh, he he kind of gets what he wanted. Like he wanted revenge on these Nazis, and uh, I think he I don't know, you know, we can talk about the end of Breaking Bad all, he all day. Done. He yeah. was done, uh, and he kind of died fulfilled um, in his own kind of sick and twisted way. The protagonist won, kind of. Kind of. Uh, I would say the end of Better Call Saul, he's back to being Jimmy. So that's it's a very kind of uh, fulfilling ending in that, too. Um, but this one, uh, nobody wins. Tom wins. That that would not be the end of any other show. The The thing that, no. that reminded me of the most was the ending of Game of Thrones where the one guy that everybody didn't want on the throne got on the throne, and he was like, yeah, I wanted it the whole time. And it's like, dude, you've just been hiding in the forest the whole show. You've been hiding in the forest and learning how to see without your eyes, and you're in a wheelchair. You you, were, you have not been on the... You've not been even on the block the whole time. Tom, you know, he... I don't... I, don't, I never viewed him as even, like a potential because I'm like this guy just doesn't have it like you, you, you look at Logan and he has it he can like command a room and everybody listens to him nobody cares for or respects Tom at all so like I know I don't know but in the context of uh, that the Swede needs an American CEO to appease Mencken so that the deal will go through. Tom is the perfect candidate for that because he's not going to act up. He's not. And he's gonna... default white guy. <laughs> and he's default white guy. He's he's your. Uh, I was going to say Bob. He is Iger. like if you look up C. Yeah, if you look up CEO on Google, you can see like thirteen different variants of Tom. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, he is just guy, and and because you know, nobody really respects him or you know sees him as a threat. That makes him kind of perfect to be a puppet uh, for the Swede, um, which I don't remember his name. That's uh, why I keep calling him the Swede. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is. I think it's Alex uh, Alexander Skarsgård, one of the Skarsgård um, brothers. Um, I forgot his name. <laughs> Because there's there's Stellan Skarsgård, and uh-huh. he's he's in um, he was in uh, Goodwill Hunting, and he was m- most recently in Andor, and then there's Bill Skarsgård, I think that's Pennywise, and then there's Alexander Skarsgård, <laughs> and I think that's the the Succession guy. I I his name Lucas is that Luke? Yes, uh, yes, I think so. Oh yes, okay. Alexander Skarsgård. I was right. That sounds right. Um, well, let me. I think it is. Uh, come on, Succession cast. Let me see this man. <laughs> There's too many white people. Uh, ah, um, uh, Lucas Matson. Yes, that's it. Yes, 
good memory on that. I, I suck at remembering all these people's names, especially since like all of them are like Frank. Yeah, they're just like default. <laughs> Shiv is the coolest name on earth. That's the only person I right. can remember. Shiv and uh, I remember Jerry. Oh, of course. Because I was like, oh, well, that, there's a lady named Jerry. I remember that. And um, Greg, because Greg's awesome. And Greg. Except yeah. Greg was horrible this season. He was. What, what, is, what is he doing? What happened to Greg? What happened to Greg? Why did he become he a sexual created. deviant? <laughs> when when did that become a thing? I think that just happens. I think well, <laughs> that, yeah. that just happens when you're in that position. That's well, just yeah. I I get you hang around that. Tom too much and you're just. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to talk about though, like the relationship between Tom and Shiv um, was incredibly laid out, where it's like Tom mm. was using Shiv for power and influence and money, and then. Uh, flips it at the end where Shiv is using Tom because he has a CEO position now. Right. Their entire relationship is built off of like profit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or yeah. uh, the fact that like the show has very good language. I, 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 I'm pretty sure it's not a commie show. I don't, the, the people that made it don't strike me as that, but they, no. they just have a very good understanding of what's happening. Um, but it's like everything in the show language wise is a market. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They, everything involves profit involves image it involves everything and it's it they consciously think about that in every single decision they make um mm-hmm. and it's just like so in-depth and like complicated that it, it's it's weird that dialogue scenes when the show is majorly uh, like almost all dialogue yeah um but it's all fantastically written and you're like on the edge of your seat even though it's like big business talk mm-hmm. um I don't think the viewers really see themselves in these characters. I hope not, at least. That's not the intended purpose. No, no. Um, but, like, you are invested in the story. Mm-hmm. They um, are me. But literally I mean, even me. just, like, yeah. <laughs> literally <laughs> me. When Kendall walked Kendall. into the ocean and drowned himself, that was literally me. <laughs> Kendall literally is literally me. me. He's such a good But even just the grind, end of the so. show, it was so funny at the end of the show with, like, him pouting mm-hmm. um, and Roman just kind of going back to the bar. Where yeah. it's like their lives are not going to change at all. Like they are still set for life and their kids are still set for life. Mm-hmm. This was all just a little game for them. Um, and that's kind of like the cruel joke at the end of the show that I really, really, really loved. Well, you don't get that big climax. You don't get any of that. It's just like, yep, this happened. Um, <laughs> these people are still fine. <laughs> Tom yes. wins it out in the end. Yeah. Well, I, I'll say, I think this is more or less a game for Roman. Roman is mm-hmm. is... Going well, to sure. within a year, this is more or less he's not going to think about it. Like yeah. this is just a little pit stop in the in the for story Kendall. It's it's going to be something that plagues the rest of his life. But yes. I'm talking materially; these people are set. Like oh, it's not oh, a life yeah. or death thing. No, um, that's where I was getting at. But yeah, uh, I think Kendall is Kendall's done. Ken- and done. Yeah, yeah, like like I think that that's something that the showrunner said at the end is that like, um that as Kendall like is uh he might go on to like make a business or just do something with his life but it's never ever going to achieve the status that his like dad's company did he's just going mm-hmm. to forever be in that shadow yep because of the events of one day and specifically the the actions of his sister which is particularly messed up um it was so good though. it was so good um, I did, I really, I mean, I should have saw it coming really. Um, but I, yeah, I, I should have not. too. That, that last episode was such a roller coaster. You couldn't really tell what was going to happen, which was like brilliant. Yeah. Um, but 
I mean, that Kendall breakdown scene is like on par with like the Kim Wexler bus scene for me of just like, oh, how yeah. does a human being act that well? <laughs> He's so good. That That's like the thing. I'm like, where, how is Jeremy strong? Not in like yeah. every single A24 movie. Like, what is going on? Because like, I have not seen him in anything else. Um, and he's so good. He's so good in Succession. Um, again, you know, you love to hate him. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because I think Kendall is more or less the main protagonist throughout the entire show. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, I should have saw it coming. I, I don't know. But honestly, I was I was like everyone else. This is prestige TV. It's going to have a bunch of twists and turns, but, you know, eh, well, you know, in the end, you know, he's going to get it. Like, that, that's kind of what this whole show has been. The first episode, he thinks he's going to get it. In, in the very first episode, he has a breakdown in his dad's bathroom. Uh, so it's like, okay, well, you know, at the end of the show, he's going to get it, and it's going to be fine. And he doesn't, um, nope. which is great. It's a, it's a great Brilliant. twist on that. Um, I need to watch the show again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's something. Um, if you have not seen it, uh, whoops, you should not have stayed this long. You coward. It's still yeah, worth I it. left. Even if you knew what's going to happen, like you won't expect all the things that happen in this show. Right. Yeah. We did not go into all of the specifics. No. Um, and, um honestly maybe knowing where it goes might actually help you piece it together all all in one yeah, go it's, it's a very dense show yes uh it is it is not a show that you can have on in the background no because you will have no uh, idea what's happening yes there's no um, action it's all talking it's all talking so if you're not really paying attention to dialogue but also so much of the character's performance is non-verbal which is going yeah, into how this show was shot again, where they didn't know. They didn't know whether they were on camera or off, so they were just constantly on. So all of the reaction shots are all in character, and they were shot in one take or another as an actual reaction. So everything is so dense. Um, it is it is kind of a hard show to get into, I would say, because it starts kind of slow. Um the first couple episodes are kind of weaker. Um, I think the pilot's fine, but then it's like it takes you a little bit to realize what's happening. <laughs> yeah, which is which is probably one of my bigger problems with prestige TV in general is that it usually takes a minute. Um, yeah. And I, I, I don't know if that is because the creators don't know where it's going yet or if it's hey, we have 10 hours of, of stuff we need to do. Um, mm-hmm. Well, uh, okay, well, we don't know what any of these characters are like, so let's just fluff in a bunch of stuff. And, you know, usually movies can establish a character in a couple minutes, and you can kind of get it. But for some reason, prestige TV is like, viewers need two episodes to understand what the character is going on. It's like, that's two hours. That's like the, the amount of yeah. time a movie is. Um, I will so, say after rewatching Breaking Bad, I really enjoy the first season because it's like so it, funny and quirked up. <laughs> yeah, the first season of Breaking Bad is a black comedy. Yeah, um, which I think is why Brian Cranston was cast because Probably, he was a comedic yeah, actor. Into something else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 
which you know they kind of lucked out that this comedic guy could also perform brilliantly in the serious role um but yeah this is i i would say this is it's not a comedy but there is a lot of funny elements in it um Mm -hmm. in succession um so yeah i don't know but do you know the loose end i'm going to bring up I probably don't about. know. Okay, okay. <laughs> I know big story beats, but like the rest is kind of fuzzy to me until like someone brings it up, then I'm like, oh. It's it's a big it's a big story beat. Okay, it was okay. one of the main conflicts in the first couple oh, episodes that they... that they never resolved. Ah. Um, or at least I I don't know if they ever did. I don't remember that they did. So if I am wrong, feel free to correct me. But I think. Because the first couple of episodes are the kids and Logan competing on who's going to get Pierce, the CNN stand-in. Um, it's like oh yeah, P and so I don't remember what it is, but they're they're trying the to get who's like really bad at newscasting. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Basic. Oh, no, 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 no. That that's Carrie. Oh. That's okay. that's his assistant that wants to be an anchor, but they're 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 doing trying to get a deal to acquire cnn uh, essentially um and they're going back and forth and they're like and the kids end up getting it and like they get a they get a call from the dad and he's like congratulations you you said the biggest number fuck off oh yeah i remember that and uh the kids are like ha ha we did it we screwed over dad and then they do the gangnam style dance or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) um hilarious it's very funny um what happened do, do, do they still get that they never once the dad dies nobody talks about that ever again yeah that's interesting is that just a thing to be like haha we screwed over dad right before it most he likely died? it was since nobody like nobody <laughs> brings I think they it do up. talk about it in like the episode after he died i think I think yeah. there was some conversation or something between them when they were just like, yes. he screwed him over and then he died on a plane. And that's like the last there, memory he has. There is a scene where they talk about it right after he dies. It is when yeah. they're at his, uh, his, the Logan's like apartment or whatever, his penthouse at his wake. And they find the piece of paper where they wanted where Logan said he wanted Kendall to take over and then he crossed it out. Mm-hmm. And Shiv says, well, why do you want that? Like, like we're doing our own thing. We got, we got Pierce. Like we, we can just go back and do that. Why do you want to do this? You're like, yo, you don't understand. Like dad wanted me to do it. Oh, so they bring it up there. It's like, Hey, you know, we have our own thing. Like, why do you want to go back and do dad's thing? Uh, and it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like I understand the mm-hmm. narrative device of it. But at the end, like, Kendall's devastated, like he has nothing. But I'm like, you just acquired this giant media conglomerate. Because he's a baby. I know he's a baby, but, like, (laughs) you're sitting here pouting that you lost Fox News, but you just got CNN. Yeah. Like, uh, okay. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know. And I was really hoping that they were going to bring it up and be like, yeah, Kendall still has Pierce, but like, he's pissed. And he's just like, no, Kendall has nothing. He might eventually do something like he has something. Yeah. It it feels like, it feels like they just use that as something to get the season going. Yeah. Just to like build some kind of tension before the big like kickoff of it. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I'd have to rewatch and see. 
Because, yeah, I, I completely forgot about it, too, because I'm like, oh, this doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't I didn't realize it until, like, maybe, like, right before I watched the last episode. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah where Happened did that go? That. Uh, so, yeah, I would I'd be very interested to see. Um, also, something right before we wrap up our succession discussion, I did see an interview with Brian Cox, who plays Logan Roy, who said that, um, Logan's death happened too soon in the season. I would nah. disagree. <laughs> I would disagree too. <laughs> um, and I don't know if that is him wanting more screen time or what, <laughs> but he was just like, yeah, we needed more Logan in the last season. Like, but honestly, no, nah, I think nah. we had just the right amount, just the right amount. You, he said I was, some great lines and then he died and that's all I needed. He said, fuck off. And yeah. then, uh, and then he's dead. It's I'm fine. Irish. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I, Greg I had to like tell him about he like banged somebody <laughs> in his room and then Greg talked to him and <laughs> that that was a good scene. That was a good scene. Uh, and then like he made fun of him later. Like Logan was like trying to like lighten the room while while this like deal thing with Pierce was going on. He's like, Who wants to smell Greg's finger? And <laughs> guess the scent. I was like, Oh gross. <laughs> I don't like that at all. Um, but yeah, that just goes to show that he's the worst guy ever. Uh, yeah. and everybody Greg should is hate the best. Him. Greg is the best. Relatively he's so. Relatively. He's, he's kind of the worst in this season. But <sighs> yeah. Overall, they, I like Greg. They, 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 uh, they, it's like how they massacred my boy. He was mm -hmm. just, the thing, the thing with Greg is that he's, he's kind of the audience stand in where like. He doesn't know anything about this side of the the world. You know, he's tangentially related to. Except he slowly conforms a little bit as he climbs slowly, up. Yeah, that's that's the thing <laughs> that's is that he kicker. eventually gets it. Um, but he's really just trying to weasel. He's yes, he's, he is the biggest weasel. And you know, he's kind of like. That's Tom. Well, that's that. Yeah, that's definitely Tom. But he's like, well, he's Tom's right hand man. He's he's a little baby exactly. weasel. Um. He's kind of like the parasite people from uh yeah. from Parasite, where it's like, oh, well, we gotta we gotta get some more money because that's really all he's there for, yep. uh, and that is you know, the, the whole thing. The money. The money. Overall, fantastic show, amazing. Fantastic. Yes, it is. It is a masterclass in acting. It is a masterclass in production. Um. If you uh, if you want everybody on the show to hate you, then you should do the show like Succession did the show. Um, yes. So, yeah, I have no idea what they're going to do next. Uh, I would be very interested to see. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like with Vince now. It's like, well, he's done with Breaking Bad. It's been all this whole thing. And, and Better Call Saul, now he's doing something else. It's like, oh, okay, well, what's it going to be? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but I'll, I'm, I'll probably check it out two months after it comes out. Of course. Of course. Because that's just how I operate. <laughs> so that is the uh, succession discussion. Um, yeah. Um, uh, let's, I'll talk about Guillermo del Toro real quick, just because I don't think I'll have a whole lot to say. And then we'll talk about Barbie. 
Uh, we probably should have started with Barbie because that's the most topical. Nah, thing. I, I like the I like the <laughs> yeah, Make stark contrast. Yeah, Barbie and Succession uh, really uh, opposites. Yes, um, but we'll get there when we get there. Um, I, I do want to briefly talk about the Guillermo del Toro trilogy that I watched. Um, kind of, a, it's not really a trilogy. It's 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 a trilogy in the same sense that the Cornetto trilogy is a trilogy where they are somewhat similar. There are actors that kind of carry over. Um, there are kind of production themes. like, And I think this is more or less just because Guillermo del Toro is kind of known for practical effects, um, especially in Pan's Labyrinth, where he was given a lot of uh, a bigger budget. And I think, has everyone here seen Pan's Labyrinth? Nope. Uh. I know that... I watched it with someone on here before. Um, I thought all of us were there for that, but maybe not. Maybe there was someone else there. I don't remember who. One second, let me see an image of it and see if Uh, you would know the guy from it like immediately. The 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 pale man, the guy with the eyes in his hands, in his palms. I do not, but no, I have not watched that. Oh, okay. Maybe Babchat was here. I don't know. Someone else was here. Or Grant was. I don't. Probably not Grant. <laughs> I doubt it. It might have been oh, our friend he? Kyle. Um, oh yeah, that's true. I'm not sure, but I know that I know that you have seen Pan's Labyrinth. You have not seen Kronos or Devil's Backbone. No, I would be shocked. Um, I had never even heard of Kronos before. Now I own it on Blu-ray. So, um, yeah, briefly talk about that. Kronos was Guillermo del Toro's first movie. Um, takes place in Mexico City, which is where Guillermo del Toro is from. Um, fun, I, well, not really a fun fact about this movie, but a fact about this movie is that this was, uh, I guess, Guillermo del Toro's second pick for what his um, directorial debut was going to be. He was actually going to start off, funnily enough, with a stop-motion animated movie. Um him and the modeling team created 90% of the puppets and like live sets that they were going to use. And their studio was vandalized, destroying all of the work that they had done for years. Um, So he went to his second choice, which is Kronos, a live action uh, movie uh, about a man who is, uh, it just so happens to find a device that grants eternal life. Um, it's a little scarab beetle thing, and it uh, its legs kind of stick out, and then they're needles, and they dig into your hand, and then like a little tail thing comes up and it injects itself into your vein, and it gives you eternal life. It makes you younger. And so this guy owns like an antique store, and he uh, he's like, just like... I don't know, cleaning up a statue and then a bunch of cockroaches crawl out and then he's like, oh, a fun device. I'm going to stick this on my hand and then it stabs him and then he's like, ow, oof, owie, ouch, it hurts. Um, but then, you know, he takes the, the he, he breaks it off or he doesn't break it off, but he, you know, he manages to get it off and then like, ooh, the wounds heal really fast. Oh, I wonder what is happening. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, the, the movie was fine. Uh, I don't really want to get too much into it because uh, we talked about Succession for a really long time, and I honestly don't have much to say about it. It was okay. Um, for a di- directorial debut, 
uh, it was pretty good, honestly. Um, a lot of the, um, I don't want to say a lot of the makeup effects were good because um, they weren't. Uh, a lot of, like, there there was moments where he's, like, peeling back his skin um, but to get, like, the new skin under it. Uh, and that ob- was very obviously just kind of, like, latex um, prosthetics. Uh, but, yeah, it was fine. It was fine. Uh, it was pretty interesting. It has a very young Ron Perlman in it, which is kind of cool. Um, Ron Perlman is in... Ron Perlman is to Guillermo del Toro as, like, Sam Jackson is to Tarantino, where Ron Perlman is in, like, a bunch of Guillermo del Toro movies. Um, so this was obviously their first collaboration together. I didn't know that Ron Perlman spoke Spanish. So, uh, surprised me a little bit when he started speaking <laughs> Spanish. Like, oh, okay. Uh, all right, this guy speaks Spanish. You do not expect someone that looks like that. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> it was also weird to see him young, like... Like, yeah. this guy should just be 55 forever. Forever, yeah. Um, kind of like Morgan Freeman. It's like, this mm-hmm. guy is just 80 forever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, he, he, he went back and forth between speaking English and uh, Spanish, which I am going to kind of... I'm going to kind of complain about the Criterion edition of this movie because... I I am someone who is hearing impaired. I know I don't talk about it a lot, but it is true. Um, and I need subtitles. And for some reason, when I turned subtitles on, on the Criterion release of Kronos, the subtitles were only on when they were speaking Spanish. So when they switch back to English, there are no subtitles. I feel uh, like that's the thing that needs to be made when you do that. I felt like I felt like that's a requirement. It should be. Uh, I, I had to double check. I turned the subtitles off and turned them back on and they were still not on for the English parts. Um, so I had a hard time, uh, listening. I had to like turn my hearing aids all the way up. I had to blast the volume a little bit. I had to, uh, apologize to my neighbors. I I didn't actually do that, but, uh, (laughs) theoretically I should have. Um, so yeah, like what is up with that? Uh, the re- the other two movies did not switch between English and Spanish. Uh, theoretically, they probably would have done the same thing, honestly. Um, so, yeah. I mean, this is a 2014 release of this movie. I don't, I don't know. I know everybody does subtitles now. Like, it is the popular thing. Um, this audio mixing so garbage. Well, that's true. It's always um, bass-heavy for theaters. Uh, uh, yeah. That, that is actually a really good point. Um, I, I just know that Zoomers, for some reason, really like subtitles. Oh, I, I can't watch TV without subtitles. Max Max TV app has like gotten rid of subtitles on accident for like what? the past four days. Like I can't get the subtitles to work. Oh, no. How do you accidentally get rid of subtitles? Well, it's like I turn really? it on and they just don't oh. show up. I think for a couple of days, they were like five seconds ahead, or at least like 10 <laughs> seconds ahead, probably. And then they just disappeared. How do you mess that up? I don't know. It's a great app. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, so, well, I guess if you're someone like me, who is, uh, or someone who just needs subtitles, uh, I don't know. Maybe try to, uh, try to watch Kronos somewhere else if you're interested in seeing the first Guillermo del Toro movie. And I don't know. I don't even know if it's on anything. I I just got the case. I, I got the Criterion release because the case is so cool. 
Um, I'm like, oh, this is sick. And there was a Criterion sale at Barnes and Noble, I think. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna get Wally. Yeah, so I got dude. the I got the Wally one, and I'm like, ooh, Guillermo del Toro. I like that guy. I'll get I'll get the I'll get a box set of his stuff. Um, and it was just all the Spanish ones. So, um, yeah. So I watched all of them. Uh, I watched Pan's Labyrinth with the director's commentary, which I probably won't have a lot to say. Um, but I'll talk about Devil's Backbone. And they just go, ah, scary monster. <laughs> no, it was it was actually really interesting. It was, um, ooh, I don't remember when, I think it was like 2013 or something he recorded it. It was like a very, it was a younger Guillermo del Toro before he was burned by, well, I don't want to say he was burned by the studio because he was already, and, and this is an interesting story I found out. Um, so in 2009, so right as like the post-production for Pan's Labyrinth was going on, um, Guillermo del Toro's dad was kidnapped, uh, and was like made a hostage for, uh, the, (laughs) I don't, I don't know what their demands were. I guess it was just a bunch of money. Um, which is weird because Guillermo del Toro was not a big name director. I guess this was maybe just incidental. Um, but he, you know, he did not have the money, uh, to give to the hostage people. And for some reason, and this is the only good thing I've ever heard James Cameron do, but James Cameron stepped in and, uh, gave the money for, uh, Guillermo del Toro's dad to be returned and to this day, they have never been caught. Uh, yeah, they 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 got away with it, and James Cameron's and Guillermo del Toro's money has never been returned. So, kind of interesting. Uh, big conspiracy. It's like DB Cooper. Nobody knows. Nobody maybe it was. Knows. Maybe it was DB Cooper. Nobody knows. Maybe not, because he would be dead. Probably. That so happened in the think. 60s, right? I don't know. Okay. Eh, sometime. Um, but, yeah, kind of interesting. So I was like, like, is this... Uh, I was wondering if like the director's commentary was going to bring it up. Because it was right around when this movie was in post-production that all this was going on. Um, but he didn't bring it up. Which is fair. I wouldn't expect him to... <laughs> Uh, like, you know, talk about it because he's like, ah, this is Pan's Labyrinth. By the way, my dad was kidnapped. Uh, <laughs> but you know, uh, I'm going to talk about Devil's Backbone from, uh, I don't know, maybe a little longer just because it's pretty g-dang good. Um, not really my type of movie, but I mean, really interesting, um, so Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth are more connected than Kronos is to either of them. Um, Devil's Backbone is more or less a spiritual per, uh, precursor to Pan's Labyrinth. Um, so Devil's Backbone takes place in the last year of the Spanish Civil War. Um, at that time in the conflict, basically the fascists were pretty much they pretty much won and they were just like going around and killing the last um 
I don't know if they were communist or if they were just. It was anybody left the Jason? It was yeah. leftist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The the people in the um in the Devil's Backbone are communists. Um, yeah. it was uh, anarchists versus Marxists, and then uh, the anarchists and Marxists fought each other, and then the fascists killed all of them. <laughs> oh, mm. yeah. I don't know much about the Spanish Civil War. I just know yeah. that the fascists won. Yes. Anarchists um, were basically just independent in Barcelona. They just kind of sat there, and then everyone else just fought. And then I, th- one of them, we're getting into history when we're talking about movies, but basically, like, I think it was the one of them backstabbed the other, either the Marxists or the, the anarchists. Marxists backstabbed the anarchists. And then, yeah. yeah, and then they started infighting, and then that basically gave the... They were called, like, the Falangists, I think, that basically, then yep. they just swept the field. Okay, yeah. So It's the a mo- very complicated yeah, yeah. history, but yes, that's over. Extremely, yeah. yeah. That's very vague, general. So so this movie takes place when the fascists are sweeping up. They're, they're killing everybody. And so, like, mm. the characters in the movie realize, okay, we only have a, a matter of time. Like, we need to have an escape plan. And the people in the movie are... Um, are are communists but they are basically taking care of a bunch of orphaned boys um and so the main character is a boy who just shows up his dad is a fighter for the uh leftist forces um not his dad well his dad is but he's dead um he was uh he was brought to this like orphanage by another freedom fighter who was going to join the front lines and in some sort of last stand. Um, and so he dropped the kid off cause he didn't want to bring him there. Um, and so the kid is brought there and there is a ghost. Oh no. A spooky ghost. No. Um, so the ghost is a kid. Um, and I, I, I guess somewhat, well not somewhat important to the plot. There is a, dropped bomb in the middle of the courtyard of this uh like orphanage center um basically in a bombing run by the fascists uh, one of the bombs landed in the courtyard and did not blow up and it's just been kind of sitting there ever since um i don't know i don't think it had been a long time uh since the bomb was dropped maybe like a couple months to a year maybe um, just because this uh, movie takes place at the very, very end of the Spanish Civil War. Uh, so there's a bomb, and then there's a ghost. And the ghost uh, lives where, they're get, where they get their water near a well. And the ghost is... It's shot very interestingly. And I... And, you know, this is actually... I know I just bashed on the Criterion... Uh, release the Criterion did have a very interesting like little mini documentary on how they made the ghost because it's Guillermo del Toro a lot of it was done practically with kind of a CGI coat of paint on top of it Um, so uh, I I would encourage everyone if you're available to if you if you're not driving or doing something like operating heavy machinery like a forklift or something uh, maybe look up a picture of the ghost from The Devil's Backbone. It is a a, a small child 
who has like black eyes and kind of porcelain cracks all over, which is something that Guillermo del Toro was kind of adamant for. Um, looking through concept art, like it was more scary before, <laughs> like it was like bald and like had like the black eyes and like shriveled limbs and that's not really what it is in the finished product. It's just a little kid. Um, but his defining characteristic is uh, in the like top left of his forehead, there is a blood plume that is just forever kind of sp spitting up. Um, so whenever the ghost is on screen, there's like some go some ghost blood coming out of his head. Um, spooky. It's very spooky. Uh, but it is a, it is a, I would say it's a horror movie, but it is not a, uh, a jump scare horror movie, thankfully. There's one jump scare in the whole thing, um, that is bad, straight up. It is not a, oh, no. it is not a well-earned jump scare. It is very kind of cliche, um, so not a fan, obviously, um, which is unfortunate because listening to how Guillermo del Toro talked about the design of the ghosts, it kind of goes against what he was trying to do where yes, it's a ghost, but like, and it's kind of scary looking, but by the end of the movie, he really wanted you to feel pity for it and like, um, understand why it, you know, uh, stuck around and why, uh, it has this unfinished business that needs fixing. And so it is very kind of, uh, so it's kind of lame that you just kind of like throw in this jump scare with the ghost. And it's like, well, if you want to, to have me feel pity for the ghost, then maybe don't have me like scared every time it's on screen, you know, because I don't know if it's going to do that again. I'm just like bracing myself for a shock because you did that one time. Um, so I don't think that's super effective. If that is what you're trying to do, um, maybe restrain that a little bit. Um, but overall, like, I, I thought it was pretty good. Um, the, the bad guy is comically bad for, for no reason. Um, yeah, I, I don't understand really what's going on there. It's like an, an orphan boy that grew up and is now helping the orphanage, but he's evil and he's trying to find the communist gold because I guess the communists were just like having ingots loaded. of gold. Yeah, they had like <laughs> famously famously loaded communists. Uh, they had just like 20 ingots of gold just chilling. They're like, this is for the war, which is pretty much over, but we still have 20 ingots which I feel like you should be able to get a lot of food for 20 ingots of gold, but maybe that's today's standards. I don't know. Um, like gold back then will be worth more. No, that's true. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about gold. What do I look like? A jeweler? Do I look Spanish like Jared? War? Jared went on a business, I think. So. Oh, it did. Maybe you are like Jared. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, so he's trying to get the communist gold. Um, and he also like kills a bunch of kids in the movie and I'm like, Whoa, is this, he's like too evil. Um, Spanish civil war was like un like it crazy brutal. So. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, and pan's labyrinth gets into that too. Yeah. Um, if you, 
if you do not remember that movie. I did not remember most of it when I rewatched it, um, which maybe I should have waited to the director's commentary until after I had seen it again because he spoiled it. I'm like, oh, I didn't remember that at all. <laughs> Oops. Oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think out of all three of these, well, I mean, everybody should see Pan's Labyrinth. It is, uh, it's a classic. It is, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to say it's not Guillermo del Toro's best movie. I, I honestly think that's Pinocchio. Um, that movie is so good. Um, if you've not seen it, um, but Pan's Labyrinth is a, um, it, it honestly is, is, a, it's, it's an example that every single fantasy filmmaker should use as like, and this and Lord of the Rings, why practical effects are so important in, in creating fantasy elements and why CG should not replace practical effects in, um, especially fantasy, but I, th- I would say in general, um, and I, and this is coming from someone who does not hate CG. Um, it can be used effectively, but there is no, it, it is not a replacement for a squib or, or, a, an actual thing that you create, which let's talk about that in concerns to Pan's Labyrinth. Um, because Pan's Labyrinth, um, it is the, the, uh, it is intentionally kind of the answer to Devil's Backbone, uh, because Devil's Backbone takes place at the very end of the Spanish Civil War. Pan's Labyrinth takes place five years after the Spanish Civil War. So five, well, I guess, yeah, five years into the, uh, fascist Spain's regime, um, which the movie uh, came out five years after Devil's Backbone. That's that's why it's like that. Attention to detail. Uh, yeah. yeah, very intentionally released. Um, and there are a couple characters. I don't know if there are a couple characters that carry over, but there are a couple actors that carry over. Theoretically, they could be playing the same characters. Um, interesting. Uh, a couple of the kids from the orphanage uh, are playing a couple of the rebels that are fighting against the uh, fascists. So, could be them from Devil's Backbone, I don't know. But it also just might be that there are a couple of actors that Guillermo del Toro like working with, so I don't know. Uh, he barely brought it up in the director's commentary. He's just like, oh yeah, this kid was in uh, Devil's Backbone, and let me get back to the story that I was telling about the... Why it was hard filming in the forest. <laughs> well, like, okay, yeah, but too I do many kind threes. Of, <laughs> there were too many threes. Um, Way too many. Actually, it was kind of interesting because what he was saying during that, this was, this was like a giant firefight between like all of the rebels and like all of the fascists. And he was like, yeah, uh, all of the blood here is all CG, but there is a very specific reason for it was we were shooting in a forest in Spain and the the forest was experiencing the worst drought it had experienced in 30 years. So it was supposed to be this super lush mm. forest that was like, you know, like a, like a fairy tale or something. Um, but everything around in the forest was dead when they got there. So 
when they were they had to like make this fake moss and like all this fake foliage that you know they basically just had to bring around to all these different locations and so because of that they couldn't use squibs they they couldn't like actually get it dirty because they had to use it like later that week or later that day even um so that's why all of the blood in that was uh cg which i thought was very interesting um because honestly that was kind of surprising seeing a bunch of fake blood in uh again Guillermo del Toro movie no he's kind of known for practical effects so I thought that was kind of interesting um but yeah so so Pan's Labyrinth it is a uh which is the American version of uh the title the translated international release is the Fawn's Labyrinth. Uh not not Henry Winkler in Happy Days, um, but like the uh the, the mythological creature. Um I, I I think it is supposed to it I don't know why why that is switched. But he he made a point to bring that up in the director's commentary where it's like, yeah, this uh it's only called Pan's Labyrinth in the American version, and internationally it's known as the Fawn's Labyrinth, because I didn't want you to think that this, like, the deer guy was in control. Like, that it, it was his idea. He's just a kind of stand-in for nature. Um, which is, yeah, so it's he's not the, the main guy. It's not his labyrinth. It's just the labyrinth that he happens to be in, which I don't know really changes if you just change pan to fawn i don't know but uh yeah but it is it's kind of interesting he implies some interesting theory things that um that that the fear the deer guy is the pale man um and he he may he may have done that intentionally which is kind of crazy um because for those who don't know, like, basically the main character is this girl who is the daughter of, of this lady who's pregnant. And she is marrying, like, this fascist, like, captain guy. And he's over-the-top evil. Um, but shot in a way that is kind of drab, which was intentional. Um... The way that violence is shown in this movie is so nonchalant, um, which is something that Guillermo del Toro really wanted to do, just because, uh, you know, at that point, um, death, death and killing to the fascists was second nature. So it was just like, whenever they kill someone, they, they just shoot them, and like, it isn't like a giant bloody squib, it's not a Tarantino big explosion of blood it is a little you, you see you see some blood pour out of their shirt and then they just kind of fall over and then the fascists like not an emotion on their face they just like put the gun back in and then they're off to do something else like they are they are not concerned this is just something that they do every day um which i i don't know i'm like that's that's pretty pretty dark but i guess it, it, it you know it, it's it's the point he was trying to do and it makes sense uh given the context um but yeah 
So she, the main character, she basically has to do all these trials. She is kind of this prophesied as being a princess uh, in charge of all these mythical creatures. She has to get a key from Big Frog. She has to uh, free some fairies from the Pale Man, which is one of the scariest things ever. Um, that's that's honestly m one of the scariest creatures that maybe anyone has ever uh, created. I, I can't think of anything scarier than the Pale Man. I would be I would be more or less fine being chased by Freddy or Jason. Those are just stuntmen and those are just dudes. Those are dudes and masks. <laughs> uh, even being chased by like a Chucky or an Annabelle, you know, those are just dolls. Stupid. Uh, a spooky nun from The Conjuring, lame. So, so she hasn't even had sex. She's lame. <laughs> but the pale man, that's a, that's a spooky guy. Um, so weird because the movie's kind of shot in like this like more Narnia, like more kid friendly like <laughs> way, and then it's just like that scene, and it's like what on earth? <laughs> yeah. Um, which I I thought it was very interesting. That scene in particular, he was like, I was inspired by Francisco Goya and all of those weird <laughs> etchings that they found on yeah. his walls. And I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. Um, there is a scene because he like the girl frees the fairies, um, which is her her uh, you know her main goal. She gets this dagger, um, and then she eats two grapes. And you know before she goes in. The fawn is like, don't eat anything. He's going to be sitting at this table and there's going to be so much food. And you have to understand that like everybody's on rations. So she is like really hungry. Um, and so she, you know, she sees all this food and she's just like, ah, I'm going to take two grapes. Who cares? Because this is a fairy tale and everybody makes the stupidest decisions in every single fairy tale and they always die in the end. And so then the pale man wakes up and... Uh, he puts the eyes in his hands and I think, I think he, it was like a, a, something that Goya wrote where it was like, um, something that he drew and he was like, it had eyes in the hands and it was like very specifically Jesus imagery because he has the holes in his hands and you put your eye, put the eyes in the stigmatas and then he becomes like, that's how he sees is he has these eyes in his palms, but the pale man grabs a fairy and bites it in half. And it is, it, you know, it's Saturn devouring his son. I'm like, that is, that is so genius. I never would have noticed that if he didn't bring it up. Um, right. yeah, it, it, listening to him talk, he is, he is so particular on, on how all that works and, um, all of the, the prosthetics and stuff. It, it is fascinating listening to him talk. Um, so I, if you, if you have not seen Pan's Labyrinth, I mean, check doing? it out. <laughs> it is so good. Um, it is maybe one of the best dark fantasy movies of all time. It makes sense why, um, Warner Brothers was like, we need to get this guy to do the Hobbit. And then Guillermo was like, yes, I would love to do the Hobbit. And then they're like, we want it to be three movies. And he's like, I no longer want to do the Hobbit. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> Uh, which is unfortunate. I think I think Guillermo ended up helping writing those movies, but those movies are all shot on green screen and they don't look good. If anyone wants to have a laugh, there is a very uh, <laughs> there's a very funny clip 
of oh, what is it ian mckellen is that the guy who plays gandalf uh, um i think so, I think so. The, the the magneto guy ian mckellen um there is a a behind the scenes little um video of him and i think it's like at the very beginning of the first hobbit movie where they're in bilbo's house and he's sitting in like a green screen room with a green screen table and there's nobody else around him and he has a nervous breakdown because like and like for some reason they asked like they played that clip in some sort of behind the scenes like documentary thing that was on like the disc and then they interviewed him about it and was like what was going through your head in this part where you were having a nervous breakdown on a green screen and he was like yeah i mean i just like i just felt really bad like my entire acting career was flashing before my eyes i'm like man yeah because everything in like lord of the rings was like forced perspective and like like a bunch of like prosthetics and there is cg in there yeah but like a bunch of like real sets and just being in this green screen room just mentally broke him um so that's funny so watch yeah. that video it's i don't i don't know <laughs> i don't know what you search just search ian mckellen mental breakdown hobbit it's probably it probably comes up um so yeah yeah, uh, I, I think that's pretty much it I have to say about Guillermo del Toro. Check out the trilogy. Uh, they're all in Spanish, mostly, except for Kronos, is kind of half and half. Um, I think those are the only Spanish-language films that Guillermo del Toro has done. I think the rest of them are in English. Uh, I, I will be seeing Hellboy and the Shape of Water sometime, sometime. Um, and then I think I will have seen most of his movies up to this point. I, I, I have a lot of respect for Guillermo del Toro. I will probably continue to talk about him going forward just because, uh, I admire him a lot. So yeah, that is, that is my little spiel on him. Uh, I don't know when his, I think his, the next movie he is making is Frankenstein, um, his Frankenstein movie one of his last live action movies that he was going to be making, um, which was kind of funny because he brought up Frankenstein and uh, fairy tale, like, and being like something that was inspiring him uh, in Pan's Labyrinth. So it's kind of nice that he's giving, given the opportunity to make a Frankenstein movie. Um, honestly, uh, that might be the one that's going to be the most faithful adaptation to the book because the one that everybody knows the uh you know the one that's black and white and the the big metal nail things coming out of the the neck and he's alive like that's not a very it's not obviously not a very accurate representation of the book which is like this transhumanism weirdo book uh so turning him into a monster is kind of not what the book is about um so i hope Guillermo del Toro is able to kind of infuse that with some humanity, which given Devil's Backbone, I think he is more than capable of doing. So that's that. Um, now let's talk about Barbie. Yippee. Uh, uh, smooth as a transition as I can get between these topics. Um, Barbie, the Greta Gerwig uh, 
joint. Um, I think sure. I think <laughs> I think it was directed by her and then written by her and her husband Noah Baumbach. Um, who I don't know if I've seen any of his movies, but he is also a writer director. Um, it's kind of funny. I think he puts her in a lot of uh, his movies, um, and then I think they co-write a lot of her movies. So they they kind of work together, which is nice to see. Um, but what did you think of Barbie? I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, yeah. It's it's as good as a uh, you know product movie can be i suppose mm-hmm. um yeah it, it it was impressive um knowing the you know the thing she was probably served up where it's like we want a barbie movie yeah um so i think she did it in a very tasteful way that makes it good art um with the product tie-in actually being pretty well represented and not just a blatant um you know marketing for the product which most definitely all the other IPs that um, they're going to do now are going to be this. Uh, unfortunately, she made a really good movie that is going to spawn um, dozens of god-awful movies. Um, not not made by her, of course. No, <laughs> but, no. Yeah, no. Uh, re- really good. It was really funny. Like, it was genuinely funny. Um, mm-hmm. Which I, I, it's just like, it was a fun experience. Like, obviously the feminist concepts are very, very, very baseline. Um, yeah. Most people should know these things already, hopefully, question mark. Um, but I, I still think it was well portrayed. It was funny. It was really entertaining. Um, I love the way she writes. <laughs> She's kind of got that nerd way of writing that I really enjoy where she'll just do like high-level concepts and complex language out of nowhere, and then it'll go back to plain language and stupid jokes. Yes. Um, I love the balance she kind of struck in that, um, and that came across really strong for me. Um and sub two hour movie, I gotta give it props. Yep, because yep, I a big hate plus. these stupid like too long movies, filler everywhere. Mm-hmm. Oppenheimer, fifteen minute sex scene. Just give me my sub two hour Barbie movie. Um, yes. And I'm gonna come across as a man here, but I think Ryan Gosling absolutely smashed this thing. Oh, he's fantastic. Michael Sarah also did really. Oh, great. he's the best. <laughs> I, I love Michael Sarah so much. Yeah. Um. Yeah, he he's great. Um, I mean, Marco Robbie is is really Marco Robbie did phenomenal. Yes. Uh, but she's great in everything. I I've, oh yeah, I, she's I, just amazing. I need to stop being surprised whenever it's like, oh yeah, Marco Robbie's in this. Wait, she's really good. Like, yeah, <laughs> I should know that by now. She's fantastic. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't really know what to say about it. Um, just because. I'm a dude. So like a, dude. a lot of the, the like specific experiences and things that talking to the women in my life seem to really impact them. Um, I, I, you know, did not directly relate to just because these aren't things that I deal with on a day to day basis. Like a woman would, um, that being said, like I, I, like a lot of people are talking about the America Ferrera speech, uh, monologue type thing where she like first breaks those ladies out of the hypnotist or the hypnosis thing. Um, she explains the, the, uh, folly, well, not the folly, but just kind of the things that women have to deal with on a day to day basis and how hard it is to be a woman. 
um, when all of the Barbies think that because Barbie exists, it fixed all of the female problems, which is hilarious. Um, that when when uh, Helen Mirren first said that in like the first two minutes of the movie, I like. I like chuckled. I'm like, oh, okay, that's funny. But then they were funny because like I am like they were explaining that, and then they said they have an all women Supreme Court. I'm like, why would you even have a Supreme Court in a perfect land? That's true. <laughs> that's true. Who who is uh, who's the prosecutor? <laughs> you know, who's the defendant here? What's what's yeah. going on? <laughs> like, dog, get out of your head a little bit more. Like, you don't need a Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, no, there was nothing like too revolutionary about the movie at all, but like it, no. it's just really enjoyable. Um, I still like the message that it sends like men at the end. Um, I think that was portrayed well just because it does, you know, break outside of the mold of just like, um, like I'm going to call it capitalist feminism, but it's just like feminism that just means women in positions of power. Yeah. <laughs> which it definitely entertained a lot, um, which is fine. I mean, I think it was more just to show a point of, Barbie land being completely different just to show a stronger contrast to the real world. Right. Um, they made everything painfully obvious, but it actually worked because it was tongue in cheek. It wasn't like down your throat. Um, it, it provided funny examples and that kind of thing. Um, yes. But yes. Yeah. No, it, I mean, even just like when they went into the real world and just like <laughs> Ken got sucked into it. So incredibly quickly. It was really funny. I um, love that. And how, how I love much that you got horses, horses were the main thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I love the way that men were portrayed in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, it's very funny. It's very tongue in cheek. I love the kind of like cluelessness they had in the Barbie land. Um, yeah. But I, it, it, it keeps it. It keeps it light. There's not like it's not overbearing with the message on you. It keeps it light, but it still portrays the message in a very um, plain spoken and easy way to understand, mm -hmm. um, which is good. I, I feel it's a very fine line to do this with because one, you're already like taking a gigantic toy company and making a movie out of one single product, which <laughs> already should not be good. Yes. Um, but knowing Greta Gerwig, the feminist message goes through, and she did a really great job with it. Um, I think. Even the way that they talked about certain Barbie models, I think it's incredibly smart for her to pick discontinued models mm -hmm. because now Mattel can't turn around and put these back out because they were discontinued for reasons that are obvious and, right. <laughs> you know, ways that would still not sell or be appropriate for today's climate. Um, so I think she did a very smart thing with that because it makes... It's still marketing the product at the end of the day, but it's not as it's not going to be like a Disney movie where there's like a whole bunch of different little products yeah. and dolls and things, which I, I did appreciate. So, um, yeah, no, I think it was really great as a mainstream, like huge blockbuster hit. Um, I'm glad this kind of message was uh, put across it. Um, yeah, I, I think it was portrayed pretty well. Yeah, I, I would say like I do have like a couple gripes with it. Um which I don't want to be the white guy picking apart the Barbie movie. Um, but like, mm -hmm. I think, I think the message would have been a little bit stronger if all of the suits that like Will Ferrell, like they acted like Ken's for some reason, like they're all goofy and clueless. 
Yeah, um, they did the goofy and clueless thing with them without them being too evil, which was my only gripe. But I don't know how evil she could have made them. True, because they <laughs> they are the people that are making this movie. Yeah, they they already portrayed them as like kind of dumb and not supposed to be in the role they're in. But like it it, it doesn't go far enough. Yeah, it's like there should be a bigger contrast between. Yeah, these, and at the end of the suits. day, like there's not going to be some big speech in Barbie Land, and then a big CEO is going to be like, "Oh, I understand now. Right, Continue." Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. not how it works. <laughs> no, no, and I didn't think that was going to happen. But it's just no. like if you're going to portray the world as as you right. know, a, a, as bad as it is, do that uh, because uh, the, I think the worst thing that happens to Barbie is that construction men uh, harass her. Um, that's the worst thing that a, a man does to her, I think, in the real world. Um, well, besides the, the suits putting her in a box, but I don't know what that means. That, <laughs> I mean, they literally put her in a box. They put her in a box. And, uh, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know what that was going to do. Like, was that actually going to send her back to Barbie land or was that like, they were going to like sell her? I don't know. I don't know what the implications are of that giant box, um, and frankly, I'm too afraid to ask. Well, didn't they? Didn't she like push a guy in there and he disappeared? Oh, did he? Did she? I think. I think so. Oh, <laughs> I don't I, know. I don't remember. I don't remember. I um, something like that happened. It's possible. Uh, and then he's just not in a Barbie land, though. Did, did, did they just kill her? Was that no, was that I, the thing? I mean, he's just kill dead. Her? Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> just disintegrated. Okay. That'd be pretty metal, actually. Uh, yeah, I, I would. I, I should have done that. that. I should have done that. They should have killed Will Ferrell. True. Would have been cathartic. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then and then the other thing I just thought that the mother daughter thing was kind of just tacked on. Was like, hey, yeah, I agree. Hey, there's this relationship between the, the mom and the daughter, and it's like rocky. It's like this doesn't really seem like why. I think the mom here? served a good purpose. Um, yeah. Obviously, she's you know integral to the main plot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole mother-daughter bonding thing, that it didn't come across as good. I didn't really care about that aspect of it that much. No. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah, and then I think this is maybe, I, I don't know. I don't. I think the message is maybe a little bit muddled with the daughter's appearance because she kind of, like starts off like she's very like goth she's wearing well not goth but like you know she's wearing like darker clothes she's like she's like a twitter feminist or something um just a rad lib just a rad lib it's yeah um but then like by the end of the movie she's like wearing pink and like ah, i'm i'm like a barbie now and it's like well no like she shouldn't have to change like I get that that's like a visual representation for like her mm-hmm. changing as a uh, as a person getting closer to her mom, but like her mom should just like you know like and that's that's where the marketing for the product comes in where yeah. it's like Barbie is cross generational and brings all the women together, which like the actual actress in the movie does that, but like the the other connotation obviously is that the product does that. Yeah, um, and it does not. Yeah, I will say the daughter spawned the best joke in the movie, though, um, when she called Barbie a fascist, and then Barbie's like, I don't even control the trains or the means of commerce. That was, like, my favorite joke. <laughs> oh, my favorite joke. Barbie's, like, so articulate. It's really funny how she just, like, knows all these things. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even catch that. 
It was the uh, best joke. It was like such a like throwaway joke too that yeah. they just kind of shoveled in between the scene, and I'm like, yes, I love that. Yeah, I I, I didn't even notice, but I'm deaf. Um, yeah, I think my favorite joke was more stupid, but when when Michael Sarah is like, oh no, all those Kens are building the wall up because they, oh, haven't yes, figured, they haven't figured out that you have to build a wall <laughs> horizontal instead of just up. So there's yeah. just one brick pile that goes really high. Um, I love that. That's probably that my favorite. favorite. Yes, the portrayal um, of men in this movie is my favorite thing. Yes, it is hilarious. because it is incredibly accurate. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, we're all we're all dumbasses. Yeah. Um, in yeah. our own unique way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we all love the patriarchy. <laughs> we love I just loved beers. how quick the switch up was when they got back. <laughs> yeah. It's like they all just like started worshiping horses immediately. Uh, dressing like cowboys yeah all playing the acoustic guitar I was, yeah i loved that <laughs> i loved like the movie where you just talk through the entire movie yes i was so i was watching that with my with my girlfriend and it was it was kind of a hilarious one-two punch because uh it was one of they were like you know doing this montage of how like these annoying kind of stereotypes that that dudes are and the film bro one where he's like oh do you want to talk through the entire godfather and explain to me what's going on in the movie while <laughs> it's happening and then she just looked over at me and i'm like i don't do that i don't do that but then like the next one was like oh do you want to explain money to me and my girlfriend is a loan advisor and uh <laughs> she explains money to me and i was like oh that's you and then she was like no that's not me so it was kind of fun that we were doing a little back and forth um, yeah it was fun it was on yeah. point like it was very um it, it's hard to do like a concept like that because there's so many awful jokes you could do instead oh, of like yeah. the really clever ones that were happening in this movie. See, that's what I was worried about with the trailer where it's like, where yeah. I'm going to beat you off. And I'm like, yeah, oh, that was no. like the worst joke in the movie. Is that going to be all of that them? joke is like good on an annoying, like kind of way. Yes. It's but, a good trailer joke, yes. but I was like, yeah. is the whole movie going to be like this? And it isn't thankfully. No, not at all. So I love that. His job was beach too. That's, his job that was is beach. <laughs> yeah it's a it's a good movie mm -hmm. yeah i will say i i think i rated it four stars and all of the women in my life have been very upset by that fact as if it's a masterpiece that's good um yeah, yeah. it's a mainstream movie like if you really i feel like greta gerwig's other works i haven't seen them but i feel like those have like a lot more in-depth like feminine analysis yes um, yes which i i would have to watch more to confirm that fact uh, i think her two other bigger movies is ladybird which yeah. is uh it is just the mother-daughter relationship kind of mm -hmm. a coming age thing centering around a young woman and right. then little women which um yes is an adaptation of little women but is more or less a biopic of was it louisa may alcott is that the lady that uh that wrote that book um, uh, because Little Women is a semi-autographical work by her. Um, mm. But the thing with that is that most adaptations uh, of that book follow the book in that the end of the book, the main character gets married away to a man and you know, she doesn't, well, she doesn't live happily ever after, but like, it is like, that is the end of her life. And Louise May Alcott never married anyone. And it was heavily implied that she was gay. 
well, not implied. It was rumored and, you know, she, she, you know, she never married anyone, which means she's gay. Um, but I don't know. So I think the, the Greta Gerwig version more or less follows the real events of Louisa May Alcott's life. And, um, from my understanding, it is, it is more or less about the writing of the book. So, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm, I might be interested. I don't expect her to be like, you know, doing bell hooks in a Barbie movie. Um, but no. I, just because she is like this esteemed feminist uh, kind of movie maker, I, I do want to dig a little bit deeper eventually and see like how deep she really goes, or if people are just clinging on to like the basic concepts of feminism and that's it. <laughs> see, yeah, uh, I don't know. I've not seen any of her other movies. I just know that she is. She's kind of, at least. To someone who's not seen her movies, she is the most popular feminist, uh, uh, like movie maker of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, Sofia Coppola, but I think Greta Gerwig's got you beat. Um, you know, she's making yeah. a movie about Priscilla now. <laughs> so, but overall, really good movie, really enjoyable. A perfect, like, summer blockbuster. I feel like it's been so long since there's been a proper, like, summer blockbuster. Yeah. Um, but really enjoyable, really fun. So uh, I'd probably give it a four out of five, too. That's pretty good. Yeah. Nothing, like, incredibly, like, revolutionary, but, like, still, like, great concept, great execution, honestly, like, hilarious. I love mm-hmm. how simple the set designs were sometimes. Oh, yeah. I love just kind of this plastic feel with, like, a non-moving sky in some of it. Um, yes. That was great. Well, I mean, and, it wasn't I mean, all shot on green screen. Like, those are exactly. real sets. Yeah. Yeah. And the budget was like 150 million, and they uh, definitely made money off of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, we need to get back to like modestly. I mean, 150 million is a lot of money, but it is a modestly it is, but budgeted. Not compared uh, to, you know, this is not everything else. Avengers: Infinity War, right? Uh, or Avatar Two. Like, we need to get back to this. Um, like, or I would honestly say less. Uh, if we can get budgets of like 50 million. Like, and I know that's the Blumhouse model is that their budgets are dirt cheap, so they're guaranteed to make a profit. Mm-hmm. But, like, there is something to that. Like, having limitations, uh, being a scrappy filmmaker, like, yeah, like, I think that's even maybe... the use of just like the, the standstill car with the moving background <laughs> coming back. Like, it was really, really refreshing. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was kind of interesting because, you know, they reference Stanley Kubrick. In the beginning, mm-hmm. um, you know, that movie specifically before CG was a thing. And, you know, that movie is such a pinnacle of uh, of, of practical effects. I thought that was it's kind of funny that like it was like, look how far we've come back to plastic sets and like rear screen projection. And like, like I, it feels like a stage play half the time. Um which I think is kind of funny. But yeah, yeah. Good yeah. movie. I would recommend yeah, it. Yeah, good. Um, if you have somehow not seen it, go see it. It's worth it. Uh, it's short, sweet, funny. Yeah. That's all you need. It's funny. I, that's all you need to say. Um, it's a funny movie. And, it and you know, if you're a woman, you'll probably love it. Uh, and if you're not a woman, you should still love it. You should still love it. Uh, <laughs> you just might not. You are wildly in- insecure. I just, uh, yeah, yeah. I just think that women will relate to this a little more. Oh, for uh, sure. Yeah. So, yeah. 
that those are two white dudes' opinion on the Barbie movie. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, that's why we saved it for the end so that you would listen to two white guys talk about succession. Are, are we moving <laughs> on to one white guy talks about Travis Scott next? We can talk about one guy talks about Travis Scott. I feel like that's a perfect transition. <laughs> yeah, we could do that. I, I also I do want to talk about Angelo De Augustine oh, okay. if you have not yes, listened yes, yes. to it, but we can do that at the end. Cool. Okay. Music segment. Yeah. I got two big things this week. Um, there was more than that, but I, two things that I cared about somewhat. Um, I guess we'll start with Travi Petty. Uh, Utopia came out. Um, 19 songs, hour and 13 minutes. I do like the cover he chose. He was like posting like five different covers. Some of them were just god awful. <laughs> um, I, I think this one ends pretty well. Kind of mimics the rodeo one a little bit, but I enjoy it. Um, yeah. Uh, so this album, um, I like it. I don't <laughs> like it a lot though. I feel like people are overhyping it and I might get shot in the street for that. Um, I, okay. First off, I'm not a fan of Travis Scott, the person. Yeah. Um, and I'm a very casual fan of Travis Scott, the musician. Um, I do think he is definitely brought the trap genre really forward and i enjoy how psychedelic he his approaches um i mean like rodeo and astro world are pretty great um and this one here i'm still kind of scratching my head over it's good but it reminds me a lot of i know people hate when the kanye comparisons come in but i have to talk about it um this reads like donda made by someone who's like less mentally insane um it's put together well like it came out on time um it's i don't know it's dark it's trappy it's kind of psychedelic it's more low-key than astroworld it's not all ragers um he experiments a little bit on here with different production styles um and i think it pays off for the most part but i find him Unlike half the record, he's really energetic and forward, and he's rapping really great. Um, but the other half, I feel like he's just on autopilot, um, and maybe that's just what happens when you listen to Travis Scott for an hour and thirteen. Um, yeah. Is there's just too much of him? <laughs> um, I mean, it, Hyena, uh, the, the opener starts out pretty great. I, I love the kind of energy on that one. Um, there's a funkadelic sample at the very end, um, oh. which was pretty good. Um, so that, that's a great opener. Um, I don't like Thank God or Modern Jam. Those feel a little bit too skeletal for me. My Eyes is really great. Um, more, it's it's really like slow and pretty and it's not what I expected at all. Um, but it turned out really great. There's features all across this thing too. Um, he's just started adding like they were hidden features, which I do enjoy. I love having hidden features on an album, especially when it's like a hip-hop blockbuster like this. I like having the hidden features because you get a surprise. Um, yeah. And I feel like Travis Scott is one of those artists where he is as much of a curator as he is a musician, where he knows where to place people. Um, and that's, for the most part, worked on this record. Um, so you got like James Blake and Boney Bear and 21 Savage and Young Thug and The Weeknd and... 21 Savage again, and Playboy Cardi, and Beyonce, and Drake. Um, so everybody you'd kind of expect. Um, I'm surprised he, <laughs> he 
featured Dave Chappelle on that actual song. Yeah, I don't I know what that just, is. Yeah, I think that I think it was just a uh, like a sample oh. from one of his things, but maybe he actually did something. Um, I don't remember. Um, I've listened to the whole album like twice, but it's I, I still can't pick out some songs from others. <laughs> um, I, I mean, there's moments that are really great, but I think there are there's a lot of dead space in between where I want him to go further. It's hard for me too because I don't really care what he has to say, and he doesn't feel like he has a lot to say on this album. I mean, it's Utopia. It's supposed to be this big concept, but he barely touches on it. I mean, we've known the title of this album for two years <laughs> yeah. at least, and I was expecting more of like a an angle on it, or at least like an explanation for it. We don't really get that. We get like one little skit line at the end of one song, but that's it, and it doesn't really provide any information. Um, especially coming off of this whole Astroworld stuff, um, yeah. it doesn't read well for him to like one not address it like emotionally at all and then like to i don't know <laughs> it just feels awkward and i feel like a lot of people have forgot about it because they have this shiny new travis scott album in front of their face mm -hmm. um but to me I, I just don't see his personality coming through in half these tracks like his lyrically he's not good we know that that's not that shouldn't be a hot take he's not meant to be lyrically good he's meant to have a flow um and back up his production that's fantastic um which is not him producing uh for the most part but there are tons of collaborators on this um i think alchemist and all the big names you can think of for producers are on this thing um so I, it's very like it's good but it's not great and i think it's getting overhyped and i think six months down the road from now people are gonna go back to rodeo or astroworld specifically rodeo and see how better how much better it is than this thing um I, I do like the ambition through doing some different experimentation with songs some are slower some have just like very weird things that you wouldn't expect travis scott to do um there are some songs that like s like literally sound like kanye songs um which isn't great because i mean i know travis worked on Yeezus, but like I think he literally used the OG I Am A God beat as one of the songs, mm. um, which is not great. <laughs> it's it's too derivative for what I want. I want a full-on psychedelic immersive experience when I get Travis Scott. And this album felt like it was kind of like just kind of meddling in certain little areas, but was too shy to like fully commit to it. Um, so it just comes out a little bit muddy, a little bit dark for me. Um, I will say Meltdown with Drake, uh, they tried to do sicko mode again. I wish they would have done a different song structure instead of have Drake come in, have Travis Scott come in, beat switch, Drake, then Travis Scott. They did the same exact formula. Drake has really weird lines on this. He's got this weird flow that he's stealing from someone at this point. I don't know. It's not very good. He comes off awkward. Um, but that's just kind of how Drake's been the past three years so i can't really <laughs> but like right. when i have drake and travis scott together that's a god combo i expect great lines that are at least funny or laughable right. sicko mode is extremely memorable drake's lines aren't great but they're really funny and they stick in your head and it's perfect yeah that's what drake does best um wasn't getting it on here i will say fiend with playboy cardi is awesome playboy cardi does a great chorus um and then he does like a really weird awkward low voice for his second or third verse it's just quirked up enough where i'm like yeah i mess with that um 
So that one's one of my favorites. I, I, I just, I'm missing energy from Travis Scott. <laughs> Astro World mm. was great because he knew how to do features in a way that were exciting and added to the overall experience. Plus, the Astro World theme was actually expanded upon throughout the whole record. You can tell how whimsical and crazy and all over the place it was. Um, and it sounds fantastic. And the features are perfectly placed. Here, it's like, uh, I feel like I'm kind of like got a fog of war around me. I don't really know what the big concept is. I'm just kind of listening to these songs. Um, the one with Beyonce was pretty good. Uh, I don't go back to it too much though. It's still, it's, it's really weird for a Travis Scott song. Um, I know was fantastic. He does really great on that one. Topia twins is really mid 21 Savage carries that song, but can't really save it. Um, Circus Maximus is literally a Kanye West song. I don't want to make comparisons again, but I will. It's literally a Kanye song um, with The Weeknd and Sway Lee on it, which having The Weeknd and Sway Lee on the same song, I also don't know if I really need because those two serve the same purpose. Yeah. Um, Parasail is cool. I do like how chill that song is. Um, I think my favorite song, though, is Lost Forever because West Side Gun's on it and completely washes Travis Scott like out of his entire album um alchemist produced beat travis scott takes the first half beat switch west side gun comes in and just absolutely obliterates him um fantastic song i love the change of energy i was like you know i was jamming to the album but like once west side came in and that beat switch i'm like okay this is what i wanted i want this kind of energy and fun and switch up and unexpected moments um then you have love with kid cuddy which again sounds like a kanye song uh <laughs> K-pop with Bad Bunny in the weekend is bad. Everybody knew it was bad. I don't know why he kept it on the album. He should have took it off after he released a single and people didn't like it. Um, Telekinesis with SZA and Futures, pretty great. Um, and then the closer is also pretty great. So, I mean, it's a good album. I, I'm not going to like, you know, I'm harping on it hard because I do expect a lot when people hype up Travis Scott to this level, especially after all the things that have happened with him in the past couple of years. Um, I'm just not seeing it on this record fully. I feel like... He could have a really good concept here, but like I, I'm just not getting enough interplay between songs. There's no high concept that he expands upon. He's not really saying anything meaningful. He's just kind of doing his thing. Um, and I expect after all the things that have happened the last couple of years, he has to have something to say. Um, the only thing like that I picked up on in the Drake song was like he was talking about how people thought he was Satan because he was like there was like this weird conspiracy theory with freaks on the internet after the astroworld thing where they were like comparing travis scott to the devil and like looking oh. at the stage design and seeing like triangles and 666 and whatever so that was the only thing i picked up on which i'm like come on i need more yeah um, so it's good not great to me maybe i'll come around on it but for me rodeo and astroworld are way above this thing um both in concept and execution maybe i just I have Travis Scott in my head as like an artist I go to for this and this album is not that. Um, but I also don't care enough about Travis Scott to like force myself to get into it like that. Um, so that's my take on it. Uh, not awful, not fantastic, perfectly acceptable, I would say, but <laughs> that's, that's what I have. Um, complete 180, uh, Carly Rae Jepsen released a new album. Those are the two records you listen to? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, this is a follow-up to uh, last year's The Loneliest Time. This one's called The Loveliest Time. Oh. Um, and it is lovely. Uh, she takes the, you know, kind of more 
um, indie Jack Antonoff kind of production and completely gets rid of it on this record. This one's disco. It's um, it's indie pop. It's new disco. It's everything like that. Um, synth pop, a lot of synth pop. Um, it's really great. I actually might like it more than The Loneliest Time um, mm. because she is just so good at choruses. I can't. I can't understand how she's done this many records and like the choruses are consistently fantastic every time. I think that's a big reason why emotion was like the pop record of last decade to most people. Um, just because like it's the energy, the choruses, um, it's just, I mean, it's very mainstream pop, but it works so well. Um, but this one, it's like, it, it starts a little slow for me. I don't, I'm not like huge on the first two or three songs, but then like track through uh, track four all the way through track 11, just absolutely bang. Um, great choruses, the synth pop and the disco come in like really, really well. Um, it reminds me of the Barbie movie because it is just bright and poppy and fun and plasticky in all the best ways. Mm. Um, so it, I really enjoyed it. I need to listen to it more. Um, but I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> so weird that i have to come out and be like uh hey um i care about this carly ray jepson album a lot more than this travis scott album <laughs> but that is my take on it um i think collage and psychedelic switch are probably the best songs on here psychedelic switch being my favorite one mm. uh, one of the best songs this year even wow uh, even better than the little yachty song maybe i don't know i haven't listened to that one in a while honestly <laughs> um but the energy on that song is fantastic she plays with some auto-tune um it's really good. Um, I'm, I, I like that she kind of went more experimental with this record. I feel like The Loneliest Time was, you know, she had a concept. She kept the theme of it very closely, and it worked, um, you know, for most cases. I forgot Beach House is on that record. I hate that song. Um, <laughs> anyways, but this one, she sounded like she was just having fun with it, tried a lot of different things. Song structures were different. Um, I think I just love her over synth pop and, like, this kind of more disco aesthetic um because she just has like a bubbly personality and it comes across in the music so well yeah so, yeah very good um so definitely check that one out um check out utopia if you want i don't care uh <laughs> i probably won't talk about it again wow <laughs> so other than that uh i've been listening to that neutral milk hotel record because that is fantastic i have too so yeah. good um yeah, yeah that is that's all i have for music I, I like the new Angelo de Agustin record. I still the, need to listen to it. I keep forgetting. Oh, it's so good. Um, and it's kind of, it's, it's, I, mean, I would say it's criminally underrated. A lot of these songs are like under 30,000 plays, um, which I, I understand that Sufjan is not attached to this one. Yeah, so. but you think like after the Sufjan boost, he'd have a little bit more clout going into this one or maybe he does yeah. i don't know what his numbers look like I, well i don't, I don't know on okay so there's this album that he has called doom and i swear it's chris chan but i, I don't think it's chris <laughs> chan i think it's a picture of him uh when he was a kid but it's the red turtleneck and i think there's a snake on his shoulder and it looks like the chain of a sonichu necklace and there's like a yellow thing on his shirt so at first oh, yeah, glance, it, it looks like a sonnet, like a like a young Chris Chan. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Um, I doubt he knew about that when uh, no. he made the record. <laughs> um, but "Toil and Trouble" is the uh, one that came out this year. 
Um, I think that has been, uh, I've probably listened to it every day uh, that I have been work, at least at work, I I listen to it at least once a day. Um, Hometown is like a really, really good uh, opener. Um, And then all these songs blend together because I'm not looking at the titles ever when I'm, I'm, so I'm driving my truck and then I, I don't listen but yeah yeah sorry so i don't know which one is which um i really like hometown i like uh the painter and i like the closer toil and trouble um those are kind of my big ones um i mean obviously the ballad of betty and barney hill very good too um i i would honestly just say if you like a beginner's mind that sufyan one that they did together this it feels like beginner's mind too so it, uh, it just it doesn't have Sufjan on it, but it does have like, and I was not used to this because throughout that entire Sufjan one, Angelo is pretty much always in falsetto, but he does kind of go into his lower register on this uh, record, which I'm like, oh, I didn't know. Uh, was not used to that. But, it went like high and then higher on the Sufjan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's kind of weird where he's just like, oh, like in that range. I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. Uh, but yeah, it's really good and it has a really cool album cover. So true. Check yeah, I'll have to check that one out. I keep forgetting to. Yeah. I don't think there's a whole lot coming out this week, so I'll probably listen to it before next week. I would recommend it. It's very good. It's, uh, cool. Okay. Um, I'm going to keep my segment short and sweet this week because it's a long one, and I already touched on a couple of concepts today, which is fun. Nice. Between the Barbie movie and Succession. <laughs> more Succession, um, I would think. More Succession, yes. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to start a little advertising kind of uh, sectioned out thing, kind of like I did with neoliberalism, so it'll span across a couple of weeks. Um, hopefully, unless I get sidetracked, I want to do something different. So don't hold me to it too much. But um, I just wanted to do a little overview in history of modern advertising. I don't know. We don't need to talk too much about it today because this is a long podcast. Um, but just I'll just do a little bit of a, some background on some things. And then next week, we can expand with some more fun stuff. Um, fun being very subjective here. <laughs> it's not fun. Um, but yeah. So I would have wanted to do an overview on advertising and the history of it. Um, so it's been a long, it's been around since like you know the beginning of humans. It's not like a new concept or anything. Um, it's you know used to be something as just displaying your products for sale or hiring people to you know yell on the street corner about your product and where it is. Um, and that was just kind of the ancient way of it. Um, advertising is technically a form of propaganda, um, since it is a message that is kind of shown to you in simple forms to promote, you know, a product, business, or a service, or whatever, um, and shine a positive light on it. Um, but yeah, so there was, you know, a very ancient form of advertising. It was very simplistic. It was literally the root of that. Like, here's a product, go buy it. That's it. Um, but. Uh, once that and, and, and once industry advanced um, a little bit more, um, industrial re- revolution and all that kind of thing, um, once that advanced and more varieties of the same product started to pop up, uh, that's when advertising really took a form that's a little bit closer to what we see today. Um, companies had to kind of build brands to diversify themselves from other companies that make the same product. Um, 
obviously this is how you get noticed. Um, this is simple stuff. <laughs> advertising, um, advertising then became trying to kind of convince your audience that your product is better and to make it more memorable to consumers. Um, so that's a very, very, very simplistic uh, view of what it was before our kind of modern era. So we can jump to the kind of pioneer of the modern era of advertising, the way we kind of see it today. Um, obviously, this will be the root of it, not the expanded version of it like we have. Um, but it all starts with a man called Edward Bernays. Um, great man, as we'll see soon. Um, he elevated advertising in a huge way, kind of forging the path for what we know today. Um, as advertising or marketing, um, Bernays associated advertisements uh, with societal fulfillment and self-actualization. Um, I think a big, a big proponent or example of this would be truck commercials that are incredibly manly and tough um, <laughs> and ties a lifestyle to a product. Uh, <laughs> that's the easiest way to explain it because <laughs> truck commercials are just so over the top. Uh, yeah. um, so products are were no longer advertised just to sell the product based on like its quality or what it's made of or anything, but instead made lifestyle and societal image a big kind of contender um, in advertising. So a prime example of this, um, people know this, the kind of history of cigarette things, but they don't know the specifics, I don't think. Um, so Bernays uh, used this method um, in his work with the American Tobacco Company back in 1927. Um, also, while researching this episode, it was really cool that Wikipedia actually had good information and I didn't have to dig through like a whole bunch of secondary sources and textbooks. It made it very easy. <laughs> I'm, this is just like plainly on his Wikipedia, which is great. Yeah, that um, is good. Bernays was given the objective of increasing the Lucky Strike sale, cigarette sales among women who, uh, who had avoided uh, smoking. It wasn't a very big market. Um, so the first strategy was to persuade women to smoke cigarettes instead of eating because Bernays, <laughs> Bernays began promoting the ideal of thinness itself using photographers, artists, newspapers, and magazines to pr promote the special beauty of thin women. Um, medical authorities were found to promote the choice of cigarettes over sweets. I know a lot of people know that history. Um, homemakers were cautioned that keeping cigarettes on hand was a social necessity. Um, so you can already see from the very root of it how it um, distorts societal images um, and can put very negative effects on populations. Um, but this was not, this was just the beginning of this campaign. This was not the end. Um, he kept pushing because um, another aspect of today's advertising is the use of psychoanalytics and data. Um, so Bernays was kind of buddy buddy with Freud and other psychoanalysts, <laughs> which mm. is strange. Yeah. Um, uh, but they apparently he talked with one of his psychoanalyst friends, um, and he reported to him that cigarettes represented, um, or he basically was like tying into, let's take cigarettes and make it a empowering thing for women, um, whose like role was suppressed and that kind of thing in the world. Um, so again, taking a progressive concept and flipping it to sell a product, uh, in this case being one of the worst products you can sell to people. Um, so in the next campaign, he kind of took these findings and applied them. Um, he said specifically about this, it should appear uh, as news with no division of the publicity. Actresses should definitely be out. On the other hand, if young women who stand for feminism, someone from the woman's party say, could be secured, the fact that the moment would be advertised to would not be bad. Um, and while they should be good looking, they should not be too modely. So he already has this kind of conception of 
we need to portray a large group of women without it being too plastic or fake. Um, and it needs to fit within certain societal norms without being too cliche. Um, so I, you see where the propaganda element comes in because you can sneak these things in really quickly. And it's like, oh, let me uh, let me try to kind of paint pictures of feminist women smoking cigarettes. Um, so this, again, worked. Um, and the taboo of women smoking cigarettes uh, continued to disintegrate. Um, the next obstacle was the color green, which is strange. Um, so in the 30s, Bernays was act to, asked to deal with women's apparent reluctance to buy Lucky Strike cigarettes because of their green and red packaging, um, which clashed with standard female fashion at the time. Um, Bernays suggested changing the, the package to a neutral color, but the brand refused, um, citing that it already spent like millions on the packaging. Um, so instead of Bernays just taking an L, he's like, nah, I'm going to make green a fashionable color. Um, so he put together an entire ball called the green ball, which is a social event. Um, and the pretext for the ball is, uh, and it's unnamed kind of host was that proceeds would go to charity. Um, so famous women would attend wearing green dresses, manufacturers and retailers of clothing and accessories were advised, um, of the excitement growing around the color green and started making more green items. Intellectuals were enlisted to give highbrow talks on the theme of green, um, before the ball had taken place, newspapers and magazines um, encouraged by Bernays himself and the company he was working for um, had latched onto the idea that green was the new thing. Um, <laughs> so this man did not take no for an answer and completely changed societal kind of beauty standards around the color green just so he could sell more cigarettes. Um, and throughout this whole process, Bernays uh, concealed the fact that he was working for the t American Tobacco Company um, and fought really hard to keep his name out of the affair and everything with it. Um, and staff were instructed never to mention his name. Um, third parties were used and various notable people uh, received payments to produce or, or to promote smoking publicly um, as their own initiative. Uh, which is funny because like, you know, decades later he was bragging about how he did this. Um, another side note is Bernays never smoked a cigarette himself and he tried to get his wife to quit constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, so after that extravaganza, Bernays uh, sold, you know, millions of women lung cancer sticks, um, but he wanted to think bigger. So he went to fruit next. Um, this is another story that people might have heard of. Uh, so he worked with the United Fruit Company in the early 40s and 50s. Um, United Fruit Company is the old name for the Chiquita brand uh, oh. of bananas. <laughs> so he was tasked with the purpose of promoting banana sales within the U.S., um, which he did by linking bananas to good health and to American interests by placing them strategically in the hands of celebrities, hotels, conspicuous places, blah, blah, blah. Um, Bernays argued that the United, uh, United Fruit needed to put a positive spin on the gr banana-growing countries themselves and for this purpose uh, created a front group called the Middle America Information Bureau, um, which essentially just supplied information to journalists and academics. Um, so United Fruit shut down this bureau in 1948 um, under a new president, um, and Bernays uh, did not like this change, <laughs> but stayed with the company um, and was paid a lot of money. He was paid $100,000 annually, which in today's money is a lot more than that. Um, Bernays worked on the national press and successfully drummed up coverage um, on Guatemala's communist menace, which 
they didn't even have a communist government at this point. I should note this. Um, and they never really have. Um, he recommended a campaign in which universities, lawyers, and the U.S. government would all condemn exp uh, expropriation as immoral and illegal, and the company would use media pressure to induce the president and State Department to issue a policy uh, pronouncement comparable to the Monroe Doctrine concerning expropriation. Um, so in the following months, the New York Times, New York Herald, Time, Newsweek, Atlantic, um, all published articles describing the threat of communism in Guatemala. Um, Bernays said in 1951, uh, recommended that the, the wave of media attention should be translated into action by promoting a change in present U.S. Uh, uh, representation, the, the imposition of congressional sanctions in this company against government aid to pro-communist pro regimes, um, U.S. government subsidies of research by disinterested groups like the Brookings Institution. Um, so essentially, he's like, all right, paint, paint these guys as a bad guy. Like, as much as you can, all these publications went with it, intellectuals went with it, um, et cetera. So uh, with the strategy, United Fruit dis uh, distributed fair favorable articles uh, and an anonymous report on Guatemala to every member of Congress and to national opinion molders. Um, they also published a weekly Guatemala news web newsletter um, and sent it to over 200 journalists, some who used it as a uh, source of their reporting. If you go back in the podcast weeks and weeks and weeks ago when I was talking about North Korean propaganda, this is the same strategy that is used today where they go through all these academics and these um, kind of papers that aren't, you know, scientifically sound, but you can um, include these as sources in your articles to other articles. So it leaves like a really big paper trail to the actual source, mm -hmm. um, which is not true uh, most of the time. So, um, in January um, 1952, he brought a cohort of journalists from various uh, newspapers on a tour of Guatemala, um, sponsored by United Fruit Company. Um, this technique proved highly effective, and it was repeated four more times. Um, jumping forward a little bit, <laughs> 1954, the CIA um, did a coup on Guatemala um, and backed a military junta force. Um, which was a ultra white right wing force um, with yeah. a psychological warfare campaign to portray a military defeat um, as a foregone conclusion. Um, during the coup, uh, Bernays was the primary supplier of information um, <laughs> for newswires and international publications. Um, following the coup, Bernays built up the image of Guatemala's new president, again, this right wing dictator freak, um, giving advice for his public appearances both in Guatemala and in the US. Um, and then he also produced a pamphlet that um, outlined communism versus the Christian way. Um, he came up with the idea of widely disseminating uh, the teachings of the communists with those of the church. Um, he wrote in there that hate is the driving force of communism, um, whereas charity is the impelling motive of Christianity. And under communism, there is no moral law. Uh, and no personal liberty, whereas in Christianity, the moral law is the way which man is created to follow, and free will means uh, free will means liberty is possible, the liberty of the sons of God to do the right. Um, so essentially, like, started as a um, marketing campaign, ended as a coup on Guatemala to sell more bananas to the U.S. public. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Insane dedication, I will say. Um, but... Yeah, uh, so that that's that's the history on the man who kind of created modern advertising, which is a really great figure to kind of base, you know, today off of, um, a real role model uh, to, to kind of jump off of. Um, it's someone who's, like, thought of incredibly, like, 
dangerous ways of promoting products. Um, incredibly smart, but like at the same time, awful, just awful. Um, and the way that this has continued is like, you know, it, where today everything kind of goes through this function of when you advertise and when you do marketing, um, you rely on a core target market to, uh, to sell your products and services to. Um, and this target market is determined off of tons of data, psychoanalysis, societal norms, lifestyles, etc. Um, so it, it kind of takes this skeleton that Bernays started and fleshes it out to a point that's almost beyond comprehension um, as we are advertised to in every segment of our lives anywhere. Um, you are probably seeing an advertisement more than you are not seeing an advertisement. Um, it's <laughs> really depressing. Um, we'll talk more about that next week since, you know, we'll be more awake and not out of a two hour podcast. Um, so, uh, but that's just a little history on it. Um, next week we'll dig into some specifics, um, and more of like, cause I do marketing. So I have a lot of insider stuff here. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, you know, be like, hey, here's a little little, little history, um, and here's someone who threw, who helped overthrow an entire government to sell bananas, and that's the model we're keeping with today. So, <laughs> is uh, do you know if this guy is what inspired Don Draper from the Mad I, Men? I don't know. I have not seen Mad Men, so I, I would not. I, I have not me. either. But I thought that he worked for a cigarette company. It could be. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, this is where the uh the the cigarettes are good for your health thing started. Yeah. Um that ran until like the fifties until that was like maybe we shouldn't do that. Yeah. Then they just jumped on to, you know, things that aren't as harmful but just as harmful. <laughs> right, right. So yeah. But that's all I have. Um we are going on a long podcast, so that was jumbled. But next week will be a little bit uh, more concise and make yes. more sense, probably. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, next week will be shorter, for sure. Yes. <laughs> As going... we always say. Well, no, I don't think... I think this might be the longest <laughs> one we've done in recent memory. Oh. Over two and a half hours. Um, big boy. Big boy. But we had a lot to say. So, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um yeah, a lot of a lot of good discussions here. Uh, I don't think. Well, I'm not going to see Oppenheimer, so I don't know. I might. I don't know. We'll see what we're doing. I'm. I'm just. Yeah. I'm still done. It's. It's a big time commitment. It is, and uh, I don't get much time off, and I don't want to spend my time off. Exactly. Uh, sad, and or mad. I did see. And I'm not sure if this is true because I've not seen the movie, but I did see someone tweet that the movie makes the point that that the bombs had to be dropped on the Japanese, otherwise the war wouldn't have ended. I don't think you could make get the movie made uh, through a major studio without that message coming yes, through. Yes, it's very disappointing. Because I'm sure they used a lot of U.S. military equipment and you need the military's clearance on that. Yeah, which is so. <laughs> a lie. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, that was like pretty much the nail in the coffin. Where I'm like, okay, if that's if that's the narrative, this movie is like the takeaway 
It's like I'm not, definitely mm-hmm. not. I think it'll still be a good character study, but yeah. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's a good movie. I'm just not gonna see it. No, yeah. Once <laughs> I see it, then we can <laughs> sure, sure tear it, tear it apart, or yeah. praise it, or somewhere in the middle. Most I've, likely, I've heard it's good. Oh yeah, I'm sure from it's good. from people whose opinions I respect. It's just I'm mm-hmm. not going to see it. No. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't think I'm going to be going to the theater. I don't think I'm going to be talking about anything new. We might talk about Oppenheimer if you see it. Um, otherwise, I don't know. I don't know what next week is going to have. I don't have any plans in terms of movies I'm going to see. I, I, I just wanted to watch the box set that I got. So that's why I did the Guillermo del Toro stuff. We'll see. We'll see what I feel like watching. But so. that's it. That's it for the podcast. Jeez. Um, check out our video on Neutral Milk Hotel if you haven't. We're back. Uh, next week, Janet Jackson. So, yippee. There's that. And, uh, yeah, I think that's it. I think that's it. We'll, uh, close this ish out. Bye.